Time after time, I've done an analysis of a company and I've figured out a leverage point, an inventory policy maybe, or in the relationship between sales force and productive force or in personnel policy. Then I've gone to the company and discovered that there is already a lot of attention to that point. Everyone is trying very hard to push it in the wrong direction. Neil, good evening this time. Yeah, good evening. I'm glad we're uh, changing it up this time and... Instead of our mushroom coffee, we're drinking some keto-friendly wine. Exactly. Having a little dry farm wines. Not a sponsor yet, but still worth checking out. I like the the yet in there. (laughs) Everybody go tweet at them. Tell them to support the show. But we are here to discuss a wonderful article, mixing it up, getting back into a couple of these articles, called Leverage Points, Places to Intervene in a System by Danella Meadows. Yeah, and I highly recommend, actually... You know, if you can go read this article, because it's not that like really not that long. It's like a half hour read, maybe. Yeah, but there's so much packed in here. And I was going to say, this is a perfect example of an article that could have yes. been a book. Yes, that's what I was just going to say. For absolutely no reason, <laughs> except to, you know, obviously make her more money. And she should be getting paid because this is an amazing article. She has written a textbook. She has. Book. Okay. Yeah. So maybe that was the extension of this article. <laughs> yeah. But because this could easily it's. Uh, we'll get into it, but it's broken out in very clear ways where it could be chapters, but she also explains it so effectively and succinctly that it doesn't need a book length explanation. Yeah. Well, and I'm sure she could have gone into like for each chapter, 20 different examples if she really wanted to. And I'm sure she had like, there were some examples that she brought up, which I was like, I wish you went like a little more in depth on that, but that's probably better than the alternative, which is like, all right, this person's like rambling on and on and on for something that could have been said in one sentence. So agreed. Great article. Very easy to read and kind of humorous too. Yeah, she's fun. Yeah. She's like a Hofstetter-esque yeah. writer. <laughs> Daniel Dennett. She's got that kind of yeah. silly, playful attitude to her writing, which makes it a lot easier to digest because it's basically an article on some basic systems theory stuff. So she is, as I understood it, kind of a corporate consultant, right, who helps companies find opportunities to basically be more productive by finding what she calls leverage points, which is literally points within whatever complex system she's approaching that somebody could intervene and make a change for a really big impact on the goals or whatever they're trying to affect. And it doesn't, I guess, maybe her experience is more on the company side, but it doesn't always just apply to companies. Exactly. The way she describes it, it could apply to like government, societies. Your personal life. Personal life. Yep. Anything that is a system, which is pretty much anything. Yeah. Yeah. And she does a good job drawing examples from a lot of different areas, too, which makes all of them feel more relatable. It's amazing that it was almost like, obviously, this is not true, but it was almost like she was listening to the episodes of Made You Think. I was reading some of these examples. That's purely confirmation bias on my part. But like there are things she talks about in relation to that reminded me of like the goal that we had done, right? That were almost like from way of Zen. Mm -hmm. I think towards the end, she got more into that. There's like some Buddhist talk. Anyway, there's a whole lot. I mean, principles, there was some like examining the principles and some Elon Musk-esque thinking in here. Yeah, I was thinking that too. The first principles versus shuffling deck chairs kind of thinking. Yep. And the way she goes through it is, you know, what you got from the intro quotation is the main problem she sees, which is that people try to change complex systems, but they're very frequently focusing at the wrong part of the system or they're focusing on what could be the right part, but they're moving it in the wrong direction. Yeah. So she's making the argument in the intro that a lot of this theory is counterintuitive and you need to know it in order to be more effective at intervening in whatever system you're dealing with. And it really is one of those where you read it and you're like, oh, right. It makes sense immediately, but you haven't thought of it that way before. Absolutely. Especially because the way the article is structured is she has 12 places you can intervene in a system. 
And she literally just goes in order from least effective to most effective yeah. <laughs> and explains exactly what it is, the typical example, and why intervening at that level just doesn't work very well or eventually does work pretty well. It's also interesting, at least for me, when I first saw what was listed first, mm -hmm. it was very counterintuitive. Yeah. It was very, very counterintuitive. Well, exactly for the reason she gives, right. which is that that's where everybody puts all of their energy. Well, it's uh, well, I guess we'll get into this one. But yeah, it was very counterintuitive. And then... As she goes more and more through them, tell me if this happened to you too, but I got a very much uh, finite and infinite games type of feeling. Yeah, yeah. It feels very like you're moving from super finite player to a more like pure infinite player. Exactly. Yep. It was like you were playing with the number, you know, so sort of you're just playing within the rules of the game. Then you're like looking at how to affect or like maybe play with the game then they're like playing with the boundaries of the game and then transcending the game transcending the game and then almost transcending no sorry then it was like transcending the game into the mindset that designs games then it was like transcending the mindset yeah of the mindset or something <laughs> like that. the last one was really interesting the power to transcend paradigms oh spoiler yeah <laughs> No one knows what that means yet because we haven't gotten into like because that that's like built upon multiple. Yeah. And they should have read the article because they would have been subscribed to the email list. Exactly. Gotten a link to the article ahead of time, read the article and then listened to the episode. They go to majethinkpodcast.com <laughs> just in case they weren't already subscribed. Yeah. They can subscribe for next time. And we will send article. Well, actually, by now you would have gotten email newsletter number three. Number three or four. Yeah. Right now we're at two. So we're, two. we're getting there. <laughs> we'll be three. Three will go out soon. Yeah, it'll happen. So should we jump into the places to intervene in a system? Yes, we should. Actually, maybe it would be helpful if we read them off once before we dove in. Because that's the way she has it in the article, where she gives the list and then she digs into them. <laughs> but let's go through the list and then we'll start going through each one. Okay. And seeing how it all fits together. So the first, and this is in order of least effective to most effective. So first off is the constants, parameters, and numbers of the system. Uh, next is the sizes of buffers and other stabilizing stocks relative to their flows. Then comes the structure of material stocks and flows, uh, such as transportation networks, population age structures. Then the length of delays relative to the rate of system change. The strength of negative feedback loops. The gain around driving positive feedback loops. The structure of information flows. So who does and does not have access to information the rules of the system, the power to add, change, evolve, or self-organize system structure, the goals of the system, the mindset or paradigm out of which the system, its goals, structures, rules, delays, parameters, arises, and then finally, the power to transcend paradigms. But some of those are, at least when I first read the list from her, I was like, okay, I, I kind of get maybe half of these, maybe, yeah. like, I think we'll, we're, I know where she'll go with them, but... Once we start going through them, they all really make intuitive sense and really build on each other. Like one kind of leads to the next one. And the other thing that's very helpful is to understand that looking at these in simple systems can also help translate them to complex systems. Absolutely. So she used the example of a bathtub pretty frequently. Oh, yeah. So this concept of a bathtub came up in this other book I've read called Into the Cool. And it's also a systems book, but it's a systems book as it relates to evolution. So it's I think it's there's two authors, one who's like a systems scientist like her and one who's like an evolutionary biologist. It's kind of written in a GEV type of way. Like it is a slog to get through, but okay. it's fun. It's like an essay style, but they use the bathtub analogy for life. 
basically like you have input you have output just like in a bathtub like a bathtub spiral like spiraling the sorry the water spiraling down the drain of the bathtub mm-hmm. the spiral might stay at a constant state essentially like it looks the same flows at the same speed but the actual water molecules are changing the entire time so in a similar way like life at least in their hypothesis right like life is kind of similar in that like we have input and output and our our actual cells are not at all the same as when we were born and that's kind of changing the whole time but we're essentially like an energy we're just essentially like a state of energy that has sustained itself huh. So as a system. It's a good analogy. By like matching up inputs and outputs in certain ways. Because if you just stopped eating forever and stopped drinking water, like you just die. Yeah. So, Couldn't really do it for forever. Yeah. It wouldn't last very long. Yeah. So we're kind of like systems that can maintain ourselves, essentially. Fight entropy. Uh, yeah. Well, at least for a period of time. Yeah. For a while. <laughs> Until we lose. <laughs> So yeah, so I'd seen the bathtub one before and it was, it is a really helpful analogy to think about it because that is really like, I mean, it is a very simple system, but it shows all the major concepts. Right. And one thing that she highlights with the bathtub analogy is where she's saying that the bathtub is fairly simple where it's got the water coming in via the faucet, right? So she says that there's, there are two negative feedback loops or correcting loops, one controlling the inflow, one controlling the outflow. Then you know it can add more water and water can flow out either or both of which you can use to bring the water level to your goal but then what she highlights is that the goal and the feedback connections are not visible in the system so if you were an extraterrestrial trying to figure out why the tub fills and empties it would take a while to figure out that there's an invisible goal and a discrepancy measuring process going on in the head of the creature manipulating the faucets right where it's like we're controlling the bathtub, but if you just look at the bathtub system, it's not clear what is regulating the water level. Right. You need like us. And so that's part of the argument she's starting to get into is that if you're just focused on how things are flowing in and out without understanding the broader context of them. What's controlling those things. Exactly. What's controlling them, influencing them. It gets a lot harder to know what is exactly going on in a system. Yeah. And she goes on to say to mentally change the bathtub into your checking account. So write checks, make deposits, add a faucet that keeps dribbling in a little interest and a special drain that sucks your balance even drier if it ever goes dry. Attach your account to a thousand others and let the bank create loans as a function of your combined and fluctuating deposits. Link a thousand of those banks into a Federal Reserve system. And you begin to see how simple stocks and flows plumbed together make up systems way too complex to figure out. So even these huge, crazy, complex systems can start with fairly simple inputs and outputs. And trying to understand them on that level first can help gain a little clarity into what might or might not work for changing the more complex system at large. Yep. Should we dive into... Let's dive in. Number 12. So number 12 is constants, parameters, numbers. So uh, I'll read this from the article. Parameters are dead last on my list of powerful interventions. Diddling with the details, arranging the deck chairs on the Titanic. Probably 90, no, 95, no, 99% of our attention goes to parameters, but there's not a lot of leverage in them. And I think that's like totally true. We spend a lot of time fiddling with pricing, with, you know, with our politicians, like who actually is occupying the office. That's the example she gives a lot. Yeah, kind of just like focusing on, I mean, if you almost think about it, it's like sort of the, just almost a figurehead as part of the system. Like it's just the name essentially you're assigning to this role. Yeah. But the role itself is much more, well, we'll get into that, but that's much that has much more leverage than the actual individual occupying that role. She gives the example of, I'm not sure when this article was written, but she gives the example of Bill Clinton versus George Bush and says it's, you know, yeah, they're definitely different, but they're not all that different. Like the president is still plugged into the exact same system. It's the same American government, right? And so a given president can only do so much. Right. And if you're not changing the government itself, 
you're not actually having that much of an impact on what is happening to the country. Which is why I think people are constantly dissatisfied with their political leaders, right? Because it's like everyone's dissatisfied, then you change leaders and the same stuff keeps happening. And then you're like, why isn't anything yeah. changing? She gives that example too, where she says that changing the way money flows in that system would make much more of a difference. Yep. Well, that has more leverage coming uh, later. It's a higher leverage point. But yeah, I mean, this is a place that we all, I think, tend to focus where it's easier to try to change little parameters and numbers and things like that instead of changing the broader context that they sit in. Yeah. And obviously everything else that we're going to talk about is part of that broader context. But there's so many examples of this. One that came to mind for me when I read it was reading about the habits of successful people, right? Yeah. Where you're changing this like little parameter, yeah. like... Uh, what time you get out of bed <laughs> or which productivity app you use instead of changing the much higher leverage things in your life that would actually get you closer to being that person. Yeah, it also reminds me of um, like, okay, I'm sure I haven't really looked, so correct me if I'm wrong, mm -hmm. but I'm sure online there's like wars in forums between like paleo versus keto. Versus oh, yeah. Like, like things that have very slight differences, let's say, right? but probably the directional focus is vastly more important. Right. Like in that direction, you're probably doing okay. Versus like also people who like argue all the time about different types of like exercise methodologies too. Yeah. The fact that you are exercising is probably way higher leverage than like exactly which particular type of squat you do. <laughs> if your goal is to get people healthy, yeah. you'll have much more leverage in just getting people to like go to the gym right. than in arguing with other already fit people about yeah. <laughs> whether to use like sumo or conventional deadlift. Right. Right. This also reminded me of, um, I don't know if you've consulted with companies like this, but there are definitely potential consulting clients that I've talked to in the past, which is like, they want to talk to you about like copywriting and like pricing and these kinds of things. And you're like, those things are dependent on if you have something people want already. Yeah. Right. And it's like, they're not gonna be magic fixes. Like if you make a product that nobody cares about, it's not going to matter what your copywriting is. Yeah. Like it's not going to help. It's arranging, rearranging deck chairs on the Titanic, basically. Exactly. I've got one site that I work with and they've gone through, I think, three design iterations on their site since I started working with them four months ago. Yeah. They have no traffic. Right. And that's right. not like a function of the design at that no, point. It's like, <laughs> and, and while they're doing this design work, like I haven't been able to publish a lot of my work, which means that I can't even help get them the traffic that we would need to figure out if any of those designs are useful. Are helping. Yeah. Right. And so and I think part of it is this tendency towards what I've heard called like the bike shed effect. OK, what's that? I haven't heard of it. Where if you have a committee of people right, like a neighborhood committee, and for some reason they're talking about building a nuclear reactor, only the people who know something about nuclear reactors will contribute to the discussion, right? Because they'll say, okay, I know what I'm an expert on, what I'm not an expert on, yeah. I'm going to stay out. But if you start to have a discussion about building a bike shed, everybody is going to jump in, right? Because everybody thinks they know how to build a bike shed. <laughs> yeah. And so it's really tempting to focus on fiddling with the details that we feel like we have some control over and that we feel like we can affect immediately versus trying to take a step back and see if there's anything else that, you know, we might need help on or even getting an outside input, right? Because I've noticed that some of the most useful advice I've ever given was helping people like step out in terms of one of these layers, yeah. right? And seeing like a broader useful context. Yep. So this is just like a perfect example of it's easy to focus on the parameters, the lowest level of the system, but that rarely changes anything. And she's totally right that everyone fiddles with this layer. Yeah. <laughs> like this is where we all play most of the time. And I found this article, at least so far, I mean, it's only been a few days since I read it, but it's been useful in terms of like when you want to relieve essentially a bottleneck too, mm. looking at like taking a step up in the system. I don't know. That's the only way I can refer to it is like if this is like ground level, 
like what's the next level up right and like seeing if there's ways to affect change that way great um that is where it gets super useful especially because when she opens like this it immediately catches your attention yeah we say oh wait i do that all the time i definitely play with the parameters and the numbers instead of focusing on the higher leverage points right. <laughs> and now you're committed you're like okay now i want to read the rest of the article right. i want to see where <laughs> she's going with this so number 11 then is the sizes of buffers and other stabilizing stocks relative to their flows and the example here that i think is the most helpful is your bank account right so the system is going to be affected by the amount of cash on hand that you keep you're probably not living paycheck to paycheck. I mean, maybe you are, but you're definitely not living like dollar in, dollar out. Yeah. You're going to keep some amount of money in your bank account and the size of, or the amount of money keeping your bank account is the size of the buffer in the system. And adjusting that will allow you to change a lot of things in the system, right? And this is straight out of the goal too, where they talk about doing faster inventory turnover and that could actually increase throughput of the company quite a bit. And also why it's sometimes valuable to have inventory, right? If you want to build that buffer, like if you want to have a bigger buffer, it's not necessarily, so maybe this was an anti-fragile or black swan, one of the two. It sounds like it'd be more an anti-fragile, but the robustness of the system if you have inventory, right, like you're a bit more robust to issues somewhere in the supply chain. Right. Let's say in the goal example, right, you're, it's a, let's say a factory. Let's just use that as an example. If you have, let's say, a month worth of inventory stored up and then something goes wrong with a piece of equipment, you can't produce for two weeks. You're OK because you got a month of inventory. So you're just you might be down to two weeks of inventory at that point. But that's your buffer. Yeah. Whereas if you're going, OK, everything that's output, it goes straight to a customer. So we have no inventory whatsoever. That does look great for the balance sheet because there's no inventory, but it's a pretty fragile system. Like one day of lost production means one day of no revenue. So that's risky, right? On that standpoint. Um, yeah, I mean, I think a lot about spare capacity given the work that I do. So um, that's something that I always think about. And you get into some really interesting conversations with owners of breweries where they do want to keep some spare capacity. It's not necessarily a bad thing to have some spare capacity. They want to have less usually. Not everybody, but many of them are looking to have less. You know, you don't want to be, you don't have 50% spare capacity, but they do want to keep a good 10, 15% spare capacity because you don't know if let's say you release something and has way higher demand than you expected, you want to have a little bit of room to increase production of something. Maybe do two batches of something a week instead of one, if that's doing really well. Otherwise, you might be screwed where, let's say you have a ton of demand, but you just can't fulfill it because right. uh, you'd have no capacity, so then you're <laughs> screwed. Uh, well, you're not screwed, but it's like a good problem to have, but you have no way to take advantage of that. And so what she's talking about here, back to the article, is that the sizes of buffers can really affect the system. We're having no spare capacity versus having 50% spare capacity. That's sort of the buffer that you have. And you can make decisions about that depending on what you're trying to do, I guess, with the final flow. So I really like that one. I thought it was really interesting. Oh, so one other thing I really liked on here was um, when she was talking about, so I'll just read from this section. So she said, you can often stabilize a system by increasing the capacity of a buffer. But if a buffer is too big, the system gets inflexible. It reacts too slowly. That reminded me a lot of uh, large companies. Yeah. Because if you think about it, I don't know for your business, but this is definitely true for mine right now, is like if I called out sick one day, there's no one else to go do my job, right? There's no redundancy in the system when it comes to the role that I have in the company. And same thing with everyone else who works with us right now. Yeah. There's like no redundancy. Large companies have a ton of redundancy, right? Like there's, And I think in some ways that's like a buffer. That's like somebody could leave, someone could retire, someone could get poached to another company, they could take a day off and the company's not going to fall apart. Mm -hmm. Whereas if you were out for like a month, the company might have some trouble. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. No, it, if I was out for a month, I, we'd be in big trouble, right? So 
Yeah, I think in some ways, big companies have just like their buffer has gotten too big. Yeah, it's part of why like profit per employee almost necessarily goes down as the company gets bigger because you're building in more redundancy and you have to kind of build in more internal structure to support the extremities of the system. It's also why companies get more bureaucratic as they get bigger. I mean, we've been talking about this a lot, right? It's like it's really fun to be in that sort of free for all stage. But it's also really hard to scale in a free-for-all stage. So yeah. you need to put structure and structure inherently creates rules. Well, it is rules basically. And that reduces your like openness to creativity because you just have a system at this point. Right. Yeah. So this is a trade-off you make. Right. And then you've also got more to maintain because a buffer is also a liability. Right. Where if you're trying to keep a certain amount of cash on hand and you know pay out a certain amount in payroll, right? right. Like that is also a buffer that is then kind of a necessity. Right. It's like when you're working for yourself and you can just like stop taking income for a month and be fine. fine. You still can't do that anymore. So yeah, you can't do that with your employees for sure. Yeah, exactly. It's usually (laughs) frowned upon. Um, Okay. So the next one is the structure of material stocks and flows and nodes of intersection, such as transport networks, population aid structures, flow of nitrogen through soil. This one feels less... It's not as immediately interpretable to the business case. The business case is there, but it's easiest understood with the plumbing example she gives, which is that in a building, if you want to save water or electricity and stuff, the best solution is to have a really efficient plumbing or electrical layout, right? And if you've got, you know, for example, you're trying to get a certain amount of water through the building. If you've got too small pipes, it's just like not going to happen, right? Or if you've got tons of electrical redundancy, you're going to waste a lot of energy, And so the best solution is to lay it out right in the first place. And if that's not an option, then to rebuild it. You're almost never going to get a better version by iterating on what already exists. You kind of have to start from scratch with the stocks and flows because it's just too hard to kind of build it ad hoc. You can do it for a little bit, but eventually you're just going to have to start fresh and redesign the whole thing. It's really hard to put band-aids on this type of thing. But you can do this with business too, right? Like um, it's probably easier to understand from a top-down system, like in any system that's designed from a top-down. So like obviously like authoritarian economies, but also just like how, let's say how... um, how alcohol money flows in the US is a really good example of this where like certain states have like maximum amounts of beer that can be purchased by a person or Uh by a distributor or by or like certain distributor like you can't have two distributors in the same market in some states and like in some states the distributor is the only one who can end the agreement not the brewery so there's like all these different rules that have been set up that govern the flow of the money and that I almost view as like the pipes, Yeah. right? It's like you want wider pipes, like then either don't have a limit to these kinds of things, right? Or if you want to have slower pipes, you contract the limit even more, right? So you can't sell as much per day or something like that. Um, like I feel like top-down systems have these pipes that are put in place mm-hmm. and you can probably play with those. But yeah, like bottom-up type of like free market type of systems, it'd be really tough to play with this variable in business, right? One example I was thinking of internally is like productivity systems, right? So like project management, team management, how you do all of that. What time you have your meetings or if you have meetings, do you do stand up? Do you not do stand up? Like information flow. Yeah, information flow and like team collaboration remotely. It's hard for that to develop organically in an organized way. You kind of need someone to come in and say, okay, this is how we're doing things. And then when that starts to break, create a new system where it's kind of like, I think that's a great this point. is maybe from the Evernote founder or someone the th- the rule of three and ten where it's like the your company structure and how you manage everyone will break every time you're at a multiple of three or ten in terms of employees. 
So going from one to three, you're going to need a new system. From three to 10, you're going to need a new system. From 10 to 30, you're going to need a new system. 30 to 100, you're going to need a new system, right? Uh, makes sense. Yeah, it makes, makes sense. Because right? yeah. you'll, you'll kind of start to hit up against the walls of whatever you had working before. And you can feel it when you start getting there. It's almost like the the dam's about to burst or something. Yeah. You can feel it. It's like a weird yeah, it's like a sense. Like you can tell. Or yeah, sixth sense for... Yeah, where you're like, okay, probably need to play around with this now. You're, you're, you're walking on the edge of chaos. Yeah. yeah. Shout out to 12 Rules for Life. Episode. This also has a list of 12 in it. That's weird. That's yeah. creepy. <laughs> <laughs> I'm just kidding. <laughs> uh, so the next one is the lengths of delays relative to the rate of system changes. This is a cool one. I like this one. Yeah, Yeah. because once you get it, you notice how big of an effect it has. And this is simply how long it takes for the system to respond to the changes to it, right? So if you were driving a car and it took the car five seconds to respond to you turning the steering wheel to be very different from a car that immediately responds. That'd be a really hard car to drive. (laughs) Yeah. But you know what this kind of showed me is why uh, I think direct-to-consumer brands are in so much better shape than brands which don't interact with their customer at all. Because in this case, right, like if you're selling direct-to-consumer, you have a very small, like very essentially zero delay in customer feedback to you. Whereas if you're a brand that has like multiple middlemen in between and you don't actually interact with the end customer... It might take months or years before you actually hear of like on the ground changes in response to your product. I knew one of the president's senior executives at American Eagle, and he was telling me that it took them about nine months to get a full cycle of feedback on a product line. So for the fall product line, they would plan it the winter before, and then they wouldn't find out all the information on how it did until the summer after. Yeah, I believe it. insane. Well, so it's almost exactly the same in beer. I was going to say you compare that to Zara. And they do like two or three week cycles, right? Because right? they can do direct to consumer. They're getting stuff designed and printed like the same day. And they can just do that just super rapid iteration, which is probably why they've completely destroyed American Eagle and yeah. some of those other older retailers. Yeah. yeah, no, I think it's like that. That's so key. There's a um, company. I'm sorry if you use so many beer examples today, but obviously everything is top everyone, of mind. Everyone knows to expect that now. <laughs> I know, seriously. But uh, there's a company that I recently met that just got, uh, they actually just got acquired, so they're not independent anymore. But they make this product, which attaches to tap handles in bars and gives feedback back to the brewery on how much of their product is being consumed. Because oh, as, cool. at the moment, breweries have no clue yeah. of that. All they know is the reorder rate. And you might not get reordered. One reason could be because your product isn't selling, right? So that's like the most obvious one. Why like a venue wouldn't want to reorder. Another one could be like, they just want to try something different. It has nothing to do with your product not selling. So that's one other one. Another one is like, there's all these weird games people play with incentives. So like maybe another brewery just gave a better incentive and that bar owner is like, okay, I'll put this one on now because you're giving me Yankees tickets. Right. Like stuff like that, right? So there's all this like lack of information and not so much from a, like they figured out how to manage it from a business perspective. That part's not the issue. The issue is more of like, you don't know if recipes are resonating with people or not, right? Like, did you not get reordered because people hated your beer or did you not get reordered because like they picked a different brewery, right? If now with this tap handle thing that gets attached, they basically pay the bar to put it on and then they sell the data back to the brewery. You now find out like, was my beer with my whole keg consumed in like 10 days? Was it a day? Right. Because the right now, the only way these breweries get feedback is people who physically come to the brewery and drink at the tap room, which is a very self-selecting crowd because it's already people that love what you do. It's not the general public. So it's um, you know, it's like there's a huge time delay in terms of you getting feedback. And so in trying to reduce that, 
I think they'll be able to better respond to their customer. And especially in a field where like you can't really sell direct to consumer too easily. Um, though there are people trying to change that. So uh, yeah, but I think that any system that like has a gigantic feedback, politics is kind of like this too, mm, right? Yeah. There's like undercurrents of, uh, like you can feel a lot of people being pissed off, but that doesn't necessarily reflect in political leader change until right. an election. Cool. There's a big time gap. Yeah, and then you're gonna, and if, when there's those long time gaps, you're going to overshoot in these broad yep. ways too. Yep. Where I, I almost feel like the some of the modern, you know, super left, like extreme. I don't know what the best term for it is. <laughs> I, I guess like the SJW stuff. Okay. Yeah. Is in some ways like an overshooting of the civil rights movement. Mm. Right. The student from Middlebury with three genders. <laughs> <laughs> Yes. <laughs> hey, that was your words. Not I, I know, I know. I like it, though. It's a good, it's a good <laughs> stereotype for them. But uh, in some ways, it's like there was a big political ups, you know, surge for you know, like equal rights for all citizens, which made a lot of sense. Yep. But then you maintain fighting against any kind of opposition from a mindset of like you have to be totally open-minded and accept everything. And you can see how it would like overshoot to what's now the extreme intolerance mm. of other viewpoints, right? Yeah, and in some senses, the delays actually could make sense, right? There's like, so there's some systems where the less delay you have, probably the more accurate a reflection of the on the ground reality it is. Mm -hmm. Then there's other systems like what you're talking about, this overshooting thing, where probably not having a super reactionary government system is probably a good thing. Well, that's how our government's designed, the right. House and the Senate, right? Two years and six years, <laughs> yep. right? One to be more reactionary, one to be less reactionary. Because she says that in the article too, is that you need to be careful that you don't make it too reactionary and then end up overshooting, right. right? Where I feel like a lot of people make this mistake in marketing where because they can see their stats and their analytics every day on the minute, they track it that frequently. And so they're getting too much feedback. Uh, yeah. And then they react more to the signal than the noise right. uh, or the noise, the than, noise the signal. than the signal. Right. Yeah. It's like yep. uh, Taleb gives this example of the dentist where he says that if you had like a dentist who was putting his money into index funds and he was investing, you know, just a normal amount of his salary. And you could imagine him checking it at different rates over 10 years. And just based on normal statistics, if he checked it every single day, then he would have like 46% bad days, 54% good days, right? And so he'd be spending almost half of his life just unhappy because he lost money. But if he checked it once a year, he'd be pretty happy. He'd have like seven or eight good years and one or two bad years. And so he'd be net like much happier than if you were checking it every day. Well, that's been my approach to, and I think yours as well, to crypto. Yeah. Right? Just don't like, look at it. I don't really check. I have a certain amount of money in there. Like I know recently, you know, it's gone down and stuff, but like I haven't really, I don't really check very often. And also I like, don't care necessarily about the short-term gyrations. Whereas, uh, yeah, if you were like trading it, you'd be much more worried about like, oh shit, it went down 20% and I bought on margin and I was screwed, <laughs> right? Then you're in big trouble. But uh, I just buy more when it crashes. Yeah, well, if you can, unless the there's a margin call. Oh, yeah. Then you're in trouble. <laughs> you're in trouble. Yeah. Yeah, I was actually, I'm not going to uh, name names, but there's somebody I was talking to who... Um, like, and this is only for one of his currencies, the other currency that he has, he's done very well. But one of his currencies, he bought Bitcoin at 19 and then panicked and sold at seven. And I was like, what are you doing, <laughs> dude? And this person is not like an experienced trader whatsoever. This person is, um, I think they they got into like Ethereum very early and, and did very well, but thought everything is just going to be like to the moon. Exactly. They got overconfident. Yeah. They like don't pay that much attention to it, but they, his excuse was, which is a valid excuse. I'm sure there are like thousands and thousands of other people who fell for this. But he was like, oh, all these people who really know what they were talking about were coming on TV or on like blogs or podcasts that I listened to saying that Bitcoin's going to 100K. 
and like it still could go there, right? Exactly. Like we're not they saying didn't give a time frame. They didn't give a time frame. <laughs> yeah, but he bought at that time, not knowing anything really about Bitcoin, and just being like, well, "All these people I think are smart are saying it's going to 100." His mistake was panicking. I think. Yeah, I was gonna could've say could have just held. I mean, I think it'll definitely get back to where it's at least back up to 12 now. Yeah. So it's moving the right direction. Yeah. I mean, I. We're not saying like it's going to be 100,000 or like we're telling you to go buy it. Don't listen to us. We don't know what we're talking about. <laughs> it's within the realm of possibility exactly. for it to at least go up, back up to 19. Definitely. So, all right. Last thing about crypto. <laughs> don't want to give people more. For now. Yeah. <laughs> for this rule, at least. This rule. Yeah, exactly. But yeah, so it, sort of the lesson oh. here. Wait, sorry. There was one other thing. I This is in my notes. So when she was actually talking about money transfer delays in financial markets, right. those being reduced and that leading to wild gyrations, I think that's actually like pretty much the quote from the article. That's one thing I was thinking about for crypto is that crypto is a 24-7 traded market, mm. whereas like the stock market's traded between a few hours during the day, only during the week. Right. So there's a little more time to digest bad news. If you notice, like a lot of companies will sometimes release bad news in like the afternoon, on late afternoon on a Friday, yep. and then you got two days to chill and absorb the news and then Monday it's not that bad. Yeah. Whereas a crypto market, it would just like nosedive immediately and it could nosedive for like hours straight because <laughs> it never shuts down. <laughs> so I think what she's talking about here is like when you have no delay, it could lead to more volatility, which is interesting. And just, you know, I until reading that sentence would not have put those two things together. Yeah, it makes sense. So I guess the lesson there is figure out what in your system needs to change in terms of information delay, whether you need to get information faster or possibly slower, right? I mean, I tell this to people doing blog stuff all the time, like just stop checking your analytics, yeah. check it every week, right? It's also like when you've, I'm sure you've seen founders or no founders like this too, who like panic their whole team for like the littlest thing that happens because they're giving like the immediate feedback. It's like, oh, this investor said this, so we need to like start doing this or this customer gave this, it's like, take a step back, maybe slow down. Maybe you can think about that, but don't like distract your whole system based on this one thing that this one customer said out of like your thousand customer. Exactly. <laughs> like, you know what I mean? Just kind of like quell the monkey mind maybe, a little bit. Maybe be the buffer a little bit Yeah. in that sense. Yeah. So yeah, you're right. It could be slower. It doesn't have to always be you want to increase the or decrease the delay time. Well, and actually on that note about buffers, that's something that I think is just like a super useful rule for business too, where there's like that temptation to run your burn as aggressive as possible and like yeah. spend money to keep growing it. But that reduces your buffer so much mm -hmm. that then you stress out about like everything. Whereas if you keep a relatively large cash position and you know you can pay a few months of payroll, even if everything goes to zero, right? you're just way more chill about everything. That's a lot of the good, well, we'll see if it's good or not, but at least what I <laughs> perceive right now as good advice yeah. gotten on like raising fundraising, like doing fundraising is like fundraising sucks. And so if you're going to go do it, raise enough that you do not have to worry about cash for like the advice I've gotten is there's almost no great company, you know, that isn't sitting on a large pile of cash because that allows them to go be opportunistic, right? Of like, if there's an opportunity that pops up, they're not now worried about like, where am I going to get a loan to go like pursue this opportunity? They just go pursue the opportunity because they have enough of a buffer to go make that happen. So it's like the spare capacity thing. Yeah. It's like having that spare capacity to take advantage of those high demand opportunities. Right, right. When they come up. Yeah. Apple's sitting on what? Like a hundred billion? Oh, I think more than that. More than that. Yeah. Especially their overseas reserves. Yeah. I think when you include that in, it's like hundreds, hundreds of billions. Hundreds just crazy. Bananas. <laughs> It's like a country. It's like a big it's country by itself. Bigger than most countries, yeah. I'm sure, in terms of annual GDP. Yeah. Like, okay, so then the next one, number eight, is the strength of negative feedback loops relative to the impacts they are trying to correct against. And we should be really clear here. A negative feedback loop does not mean bad. Yeah. 
it means that there is a feedback loop that is self-canceling. So it's a system that can turn itself off, essentially. And she gives the example of a thermostat, which is, you know, the goal of the thermostat is to keep the temperature in place, right? The room temperature. So what that can do is that if the temperature deviates away from room temperature, it turns itself on by expanding the mercury in the thermometer or whatever system it's using that, you know, activates the heater or activates the cooling. It brings it back to room temperature and then it turns itself off. Right. It's a self-destructive loop in that sense. It actually came up in Way of Zen. It did. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, yeah. In relation to human, I guess, emotional regulation. Yeah, emotional regulation, right? If a thermostat was trying to keep the perfect temperature all the time, it would just constantly be turning yeah. off and on like crazy. That's not healthy. <laughs> right. Right. It's not like kind of like trying to stay perfectly happy or perfectly calm all the time. It's like staying within a range. Is yeah. Really you want to be in the range. Exactly. Yeah. I thought this was really good. And also, thanks for giving that qualifier about negative feedback. Limit. Yeah. I well, that. I always forget that. Yeah. I yeah. always forget that. I think like, oh, negative, bad, positive, good. It's like, well, no, there's a lot of good negative feedback loops, right. a lot of bad, positive <laughs> feedback loops. I did like also that in relation to that, she brought up this, you know, I'll read out the quote, but um, this is from the article. One of the big mistakes we make is to strip away these emergency response mechanisms because they aren't often used and they appear to be costly. In the short term, we see no effect from doing this. In the long term, we drastically narrow the range of conditions over which the system can survive. One of the heartbreaking ways we do this is in encroaching on the habitats of endangered species. Another is in encroaching on our own time for rest, recreation, socialization, and meditation. So I really like that because it's like, it's easy. I was thinking, you know, from a company perspective or from like a, you know, even a government perspective, it's easy to like look at a program that's like not really giving a ton of value in like the immediate everyday kind of thing. But in, you know, it's almost like a black swan prevention type of, tool right it's like something that you would use if things went to shit or if this exact certain situation happened and it's like most of the time you don't need it but when you need it you really really want to make sure you have it yeah so it's like species diversity for example right doesn't matter most of the time like 99.999 percent of the time does not matter when you have an existential crisis where you lose a lot of biodiversity you really want to have that yeah there as a bank or you need a you not meaning like you as an individual or you as in like a omnipotent creature but essentially the system needs a mutation or a certain type of gene for life to continue it's really good to have that biodiversity to draw on so yeah i mean and then the rest recreation thing is kind of like obvious but it's like if you burn the candle at both ends like you will have a breakdown exactly and i think the problem she's highlighting there is that there is not a strong negative feedback loop to doing that damage Right. right working an extra couple hours a day you don't have that same automatic corrective thing like a thermostat. Right. It's easy for it to compound and compound and compound. Right. Or if you just keep in like killing off creatures, right? It's like, yeah, yeah you don't notice. You like, don't notice it till it's too late. Yeah, exactly. Well, it's kind of like also with uh, like monoculturing for farming. Mm-hmm. It's a perfect like, example. Yeah. Actually, that's almost a case where it actually helps in the short term to monoculture. So when we monoculture, I mean, using like, let's say there's many different species of like tomatoes out there, right? right? We all use one, most of us use like one species of tomato because it has the highest yield and it grows the best in certain conditions in areas where tomatoes grown. And that's in the short term really good because you don't have like variation in the yield. You actually maximize the yield as much as you can for normal conditions. But it's really bad if those conditions change in any way, shape, or form. So if there's like a parasite that just affects that species, right? you have all of a sudden no more tomatoes. It's not that like just that one type of tomato is gone. All, all your tomatoes are gone. <laughs> that's true for bananas. I was for about sure. to say, that's the big thing with bananas yeah. is that since they're... I think they're technically fungi. Is that what it is? I don't know. And so they're all... I read that book, though, The Banana King. Yeah, yeah, yeah. They're they're all clones, right? So they're genetically identical. 
And even though there were m- many other types of bananas before, yeah, well, there's still I think a there few still of are, them, yeah, but a lot of the old ones have died out, including the one that had the slippery peel, right? Right. So yeah. the Big Mike, I think, is that was that one, and that's gone. Yeah. Right? So you don't have the slippery peel bananas anymore because like one little disease pops up and they all go extinct, right? Because right? they're clones of each other. Yeah, yeah. which is not not good uh, biodefense. It is a very fragile system. So. And the example she gives, what she's talking about in this section, is that sometimes you need a stronger negative feedback loop in order to prevent a system getting out of control. It's kind of like a thermostat might work fine normally, but if you have a really cold day with the windows open, it can only do so much, right? And sometimes to improve the system, you need a better negative feedback loop, like with phishing. She says that traditional controls on phishing were sufficient until radar spotting and drift nets and other tech made it possible for a few actors to wipe out the fish. Right, we need to create these negative loops to prevent some of these things getting out of control, which relates a lot back to the Merchants and Outbook, yeah. where there just aren't some of these negative feedback loops to prevent bad science getting out there. And we think about this a lot today, too, with the whole fake news thing, right? where it's a legitimate problem. There is fake news getting Absolutely. spread by certain organizations, and it does extremely well on Facebook and you know other social media, and there's not really a corrective system in place there's also no corrective system on the system like on facebook yeah well that's what i mean it's like facebook has done a terrible job of managing it it's also kind of crazy to expect facebook to manage it if you think about it right i got an article brewing about this which is sort of like like the brewing reference too thank you (laughs) (laughs) well it's this question of you know who do you trust to make those decisions right because there are probably people at facebook who would say that talking about biological foundations of personality differences is fake, right? Or is like bigoted, but it's just like science, right? right? But so we don't want that person running the controls over what can and can't be put on Facebook, right? right? But then like, who do we trust? And I mean, it's, it's good. Like I trust myself, right? <laughs> but I know there's somebody out there who doesn't trust me to do it right. either. Right. Exactly. Because I'd be like, no, you know, like Obama wasn't spawn of Satan. They'd be like, no, right. But it's, it's kind of like, a, well, who, who does get to decide? Right. Well, I think that is like literally the purpose of government. Yeah, like, literally is the purpose of the government. Is that, I know, I know what you mean. It's not perfect, but like we don't want them censoring stuff. No, we don't. Because it's don't. fine today, but then tomorrow, right? It's a slippery slope argument. Though. Yeah, yeah. And then I know. you I run know. into it's like it's easy to say, well, okay, so I just censor things that aren't true, right? And then it's like, well, okay, but what about the things that might be true, right? Right? Or do, that people just disagree on. What people true. disagree yeah. on, right? Like, where do we draw the line? And it's kind of like, are you familiar with the veil of ignorance, John Rawls? No, you can explain it. Where it's basically like, it's a thought experiment that says the way to figure out the best form of government is to imagine that you have to pick a form of government without knowing where you will stand in that government. Mm. So it's like, it's easy for, you know, rich, young, well-educated people to say like, oh, we don't need high taxes and welfare and all this stuff, right? But it's like, well, you already know that you're a rich, well-off person, right? Right? And so the way to think about it is really like, you have no idea if you're going to be- Where in the game. Exactly. You have no idea if you're going to be like the richest person in society or like a one-armed, uneducated person living on the streets, right? right? So which society do you want not knowing where you're going to play out? And I kind of- That's a really interesting thought. It's a great thought experiment. I love it. And I kind of have to think about that with censorship too, right? It's like you not knowing who is going to be the one like writing the censorship code yeah what do you want influencing it it's kind of like what the constitution was for too it's like how okay the people who wrote the constitution most of them were like very noble pretty wealthy quote freedom loving people right like but they had to write the rule book assuming it's not like it's obviously not going to be them in perpetuity so that's sort of why there was a rule book which i think she gets into as well later on yeah like about how it's like the The rules rules of the system exactly it's a big one no but you're right though it's like 
who would yeah what do you think about the media side like i think we're gonna do an episode about this at some point but yeah yeah we've been talking about it but like this is the hardest thing for me is that when i go through that thought experiment all i can land on is that facebook shouldn't censor anything mm. right yeah it only they should censor which is why i actually like twitter in a lot more ways than facebook because yeah. it's not i think they do have a bit of an algorithmic approach now but it's much less. I think they should censor hate speech. Yes. Right. No, but I'm saying like Twitter is still much more of like a timeline, like a true timeline yeah, than Facebook. Closer. Whereas Facebook, like, I don't know about you. I hardly like see different people's like I only see a few people's posts on there at this point because I don't really interact with too many people. I haven't looked at my news feed in months. Yeah, well, I know you're <laughs> smart about that. But uh, I only interact with certain people on Facebook. So I only see those people. And like I'm friends with a lot more people, but I just don't see their stuff. Whereas Twitter, like, I mean, there's people who I never interact with, but I always see their tweets because it's just a timeline. I think it's a way more social of a network in that sense. It's way more free information. Free flowing. Yeah. Like stepping into the stream. Yeah. But I do think, though, like expecting Facebook to regulate themselves is kind of like expecting a tobacco company to regulate themselves. It's like, I'm sure there are people within Facebook who want to do the right thing. Just like I'm sure tobacco companies had somebody in their R&D department who was like, hey, we should probably figure out like how to do this more safely. Yeah. Because we're killing a lot of people. And they're probably like, oh, just go It'll play in your corner. Here's, <laughs> here's some more budget to do some experiments. Just that- try to make it look like there's less smoke. Yeah. <laughs> so like, I don't know. I kind of always think about that for Facebook regulating themselves. It's like almost like very naive to expect them to figure it out on their own. Cause like there might be people as Zuckerberg has like hired a whole bunch of people to like solve this. I'm sure there are people who want to do the right thing, but like the system itself is designed to make money. So like whatever is going to make money is what they're going to do. That's the thing. It's like drawing from this article, you have to, you know, people are talking about changing the parameters, changing what is allowed to be shared. Yeah. Or I guess that's kind of like the rules, but it's really like changing what shows up in your newsfeed kind of parameters. Whereas what you really have to do is change like the conceptual level or like the, especially the rules and how they make money, right? Where you have to think about, I mean, this is quite a bit higher on the list, I think, but if we're looking at the rules of the system and the goals, right? That's probably the biggest one here is what is the goal of Facebook? Right, of course. And the goal, it's a company. The goal is to make money, right? That is the goal, right? That's the goal, yeah. Check that episode out if you're (laughs) unsure. I mean, so they have to... (laughs) No, I thought their goal is connecting the world. Yeah, exactly. Right? Yeah. (laughs) Fostering true connection. It's like, no, they have to make money, especially now they're a public company. Sorry, we've had this conversation. Maybe I think it was in private, but it's like, this happens in tech in general, but like a lot of people who have like they think their companies are doing like very noble yeah, things. Yeah, they do this noble big thing. Sure, your right. company probably does some like has some good, some positive good for the world, right? But like the goal is to make money if it's a company. Yeah. And like that's no different than Goldman Sachs. I love when people get really like thrown off when I tell them <laughs> that. They're like, so what is your goal with this company? I'm just like, make a lot of money, right? Like and people are like, oh well, what else? What's the what's the like noble? They're just like, why? <laughs> right. It's like that's the uh, it's the marketing mostly the marketing stuff, right? But people who I talk to who work at Facebook, a lot of them buy into that. No, yeah. It's a powerful, motivating brand ethos that they've yeah. developed, I guess. And to be fair, I think you can believe in that and feel like you are facilitating that Yeah. while this also is true, right? They're not necessarily mutually But the thing is the core value of that system, right, is like if, let's say tomorrow, Facebook had some internal study and they found out that like, okay, the best way to actually connect people and reduce this fake news thing was we have to get rid of all of our ads. 
that report is going to get shut down so fast and those people are, might get fired <laughs> for even like talking about that. Yeah. Right? Like it's just not very likely that they're going to be like, yeah, we're just not going to make money anymore. Or we're going to take six months to figure out how we... $5 a month subscription. Yeah. Like yeah. it's very unlikely, right? That they would make that choice. So... Right. That's how you know what the real incentive right, is. Exactly. It's like you can choose ads or better connecting people weirdly enough this is related to like what jordan peterson talks about when he talks about hierarchy because he always says like you can't have two priorities essentially or two things at the top of the hierarchy there's always one core like chief thing at the top of the hierarchy which for any company is making money because otherwise they're not a company yeah right like, <laughs> <laughs> unless they can't doing the other they can't keep doing the other right. thing they say is a priority. well i guess it's also when we were earlier in the episode we were talking about ourselves as a system right and like if you think of our genes as like the things that run the show, our yeah. genes goal is to perpetuate the genes. So like everything else, like the eating, the like working, like all that stuff is like to maintain the machinery that can perpetuate the genes. That's sort of the main thing, right? If you yeah. think about it. It's a whole selfish gene hypothesis. Yeah. 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 So it's very interesting, right? It's like you need to have like one sort of core goal and then everything else is like subservient to it. Which is very interesting to think about. Yeah, but we'll get to that one. Anyway. That's number four. Yeah, we got to get to seven first. Yep. Next one is the gain around driving positive feedback loops. So, and this is where she gives the distinction I mentioned before, that a negative feedback loop is self-correcting and a positive feedback loop is self-reinforcing. The more it works, the more it gains power to work some more. The more people catch the flu, the more they infect other people. The more babies are born, the more people grow up to have babies. The more money you have in the bank, the more interest you earn and the more money you have in the bank. But then she goes on to say that a system with an unchecked positive loop will ultimately destroy itself. So they're not purely good things. There will eventually be problems that arise from the continual growth that they facilitate. So do you notice this? I feel like you get a lot of customers through referral. We, we do as well. Mm -hmm. That's very much a positive feedback loop is like each customer you get leads to more customers. Yeah. And it's it's a great thing. But sometimes you also need to like keep it in control because like your system can get over bogged down by growth. I think that's what she's talking about here, where like it, it can grow too fast and just implode on itself. Right. Or I mean, even in a more micro example, if you have a really popular article, yeah. right, and people keep sharing it and it keeps getting more and more popular and then it blows up your hosting, mm. right, and your whole site crashes. Yeah. Has that happened to you? It hasn't happened to me yet. I've gotten lucky with my hosting. I've got yeah. good hosting, but I know people who have had cheaper hosting where especially something goes well on Reddit. Yeah. So I've been able to be okay with huge Reddit spikes, but I know people who have just gotten like killed by those, which is never a fun experience, I'm sure. I do. I also like how she brought up that usually a negative loop will kick in at some point. Right. It's kind of like, um, I mean, like a cancer is kind of like this too, mm -hmm. right? Where at some point, like the host will die. Yeah. Right. So the cancer keep, can't, can't keep growing forever. Yeah. That's like the example she gives. The epidemic will run out of infectable people or people will take increasingly strong steps to avoid being infected. The death rate will rise to equal the birth rate or people will see the consequences of unchecked population growth and have fewer babies. That's actually what we see in westernized countries mm -hmm. yeah. is that birth rates are declining and the rate of growth is not negative, but the logarithm of it is. Mm. So the acceleration in growth is declining. That could be for other reasons, though, too, than people just seeing like. Well, I, I think it's because when you're rich and healthy and your babies aren't expected to die, you have fewer of them. Yes, right? which makes total need, sense. You don't need to like gamble as much. And you can invest more in each baby which means you you don't want to spread it out over well probably also the working longer too right yeah. it's like with women in the workforce they're having kids much later right and so That's you true. start having kids at 30 32 instead of 24 right and so you're just going to naturally have fewer that way it's just less time yeah it's just that less way. time to do it yeah more people putting off their careers 
for marriages. I mean, how many of your friends under 30 are married? Not many. Yeah. It's like not a normal thing. But you go back to our parents' generation or generation before, that was like expected. Yeah. It was like weird if you weren't. It was weird if you weren't. Yeah. Um, Oh, yeah. There's like the rich get richer thing that she talks about here. Oh, yeah. That distinction is really interesting where she basically says that anti-poverty programs are a waste of time and that we should instead create more counters to the positive loops that create wealth inequality. Yeah, that was interesting. Yeah, because kind of what she's saying is that wealth inequality isn't so much a function of people at the bottom having failed. It's the ability for people at the top to reinforce their wealth. Yeah. And I think like one argument she would make would be don't tax income as much, but tax investment returns more. Yeah. Right, Because that would be a way to weaken the positive feedback loop while not necessarily hurting people at the bottom. Right, because it'd be like passive... Especially the idea of like having money increases the amount of money you can make kind of thing. Like I could definitely see that being, well, actually, interestingly, the UK is doing some stuff like that. It might get messed up soon, but uh, at the moment they have this where there's a strong distinction in capital gains between if you started a company or it's a passive income. Uh So we don't distinguish between that. So if you sell your company in the US, and I think if you've had it longer than a year, you pay capital gains tax on that, whatever you made off the sale. And that's the exact same as you'd pay if you you got a dividend check or an interest check or something, right? And in the UK right now, there's a, you pay half the rate if it's a company you started. So if it's an entrepreneurship and you have to have an active role, like you can't be like, oh, I invested in this company. It's like you have to be both a founder and an officer and you have to have been there longer than a year and it has to be greater than 10% equity. There's like all these qualifiers, but basically the whole purpose of that law, right, is to distinguish between passive income and people who like invested like sweat equity essentially in starting a company, which they want to encourage and they don't want to penalize you for that. Yeah. But they have a significantly, I think they have a higher capital gains rate than we do. I actually kind of like that model. I like that a lot. Where you reduce... Say like they only pay ten percent if you sell a company. If you're a UK citizen wow. selling, yeah, you only pay. So if you sell a company for a million dollars, you get nine hundred thousand. That's great. Off that, yeah, it's way better than the US. Well, ours is twenty, but it's twenty whether it's a dividend check for a million dollars or you started a company yeah. and invested like five years of your life. I was gonna say, I mean, I like that idea a lot where we pay more taxes on investment returns and luxury goods and significantly less on income and essential goods. I think that makes total sense. Yeah. Taxing income never made that much sense to me. Just regular income. Because it's kind of like, I always thought about it if like, okay, tobacco tax, right? Like we, sorry, we just did the tobacco book. I'm thinking (laughs) a lot about that too. Yeah. Um, You tax tobacco so highly to reduce consumption. That's like one of the ideas. It's kind of like if you tax income, are you trying to like reduce income? Yeah. Maybe like wages, essentially. And wages are normally not where the 1% of the 1% are making their money. Right. They make it on capital gains, right? So it's like kind of didn't make, never really made that much sense to me. Although the US tax law is so fucked up. I mean, and Intuit literally pays for, I think they have the biggest lobbying branch of almost any company. Really? Might have the biggest. Really? Yeah, because they pay to prevent the tax code from getting simplified so they can keep making money off of their tax products. Because if we just had like a, so, I mean, there have been multiple motions for the government to send you pre-filled tax forms. Right. Well, even Herman Cain had that whole 999 thing. That was a, have you ever remember what that? What was the 999 thing? Oh, it was 2012? Yeah, I think that was when he ran. Yeah, so it was 9% income, 9% national sales tax, and 9% capital gains tax just oh. across the board. I mean, it was not going to be enough to make up for the lost income, but the idea was essentially, I guess the directional idea, right? Not the specifics, but the directional idea was lower income tax, add a, a national sales tax and now you're taxing consumption. Right. I think you were excluding like grocery stores and like 
basically like a bunch of essentials you exclude and then also like lower the capital gains. So I think like it was too simple, but like the direction made some sense, which is like make it easy. The movement that's been done a few times is for the government to mail you your 1040 filled out for you. Hmm. So you just sign it and send it back. That would be awesome. tried to do that multiple times, but Intuit blocks it. How would they do that? Unless they change the other rules. Uh, Employer pay stubs. Oh, so if you're just W-2. If you're just W-2. Yeah, yeah, yeah. it wouldn't work for like us. Right, right? I was going to say for like 1099 or people who have like multiple streams. 1099 stuff that gets too complicated. It'll get a little tricky. Yeah. If you can fill out the 1040 easy. Which there's a lot of people that can. Most people. There's most people in the country, right? Then they would just send it to you. And if it looks good, you just sign it and send it back. And then you're good to go, right? Yeah. It makes so much sense. It makes so much sense. But Intuit's like, no, no, no. (laughs) We would like to keep selling TurboTax. So, (laughs) And I hate like shitting on Intuit because like I like QuickBooks. I was going to say, I love QuickBooks. Oh, yeah. Update. I definitely, I never told you, but I signed up for QuickBooks like after we talked about it like two months ago on that episode. I love it. It's awesome. Yeah, it's it's a great software. Yeah, it's so helpful. I wish they would allow international banks to connect to it because they don't. And so taking payments from international customers is just a huge pain in the ass. Can you set up a PayPal account through your bank account? You can, but PayPal takes 2.9%, which is not fun. Oh, right. no matter what, no matter if it's a bank transfer or a credit card. Yeah. yeah. You can accept credit cards on QuickBooks. Yeah, though. but then it's... They take 2.9%. Then they take 2.9%. Yeah. <laughs> it's, it's like no matter what you're paying 3%. Right. I mean, we've got a Canadian client. They could connect to... They could convert to Bitcoin and then... I was going to say, I'm, I'm trying to talk him into doing it, but he's like an older guy. I think he feels a little weird. Like, yeah. <laughs> I think it was if it was a younger company, they'd be down because yeah. I'm just like, look, just send me Litecoin, right? right. It's less volatile. Yeah. It'll be fine. Yeah. But they don't want to do it. So we, we've done, we did PayPal once and we lost like $400. Oh, on the, right? tra- on the fee. It was a $7,000 like transfer. So I mostly do, um, obviously now we're getting really into the weeds, but I mostly do bank transfer. And then lately we had our first customer who wanted to pay by credit card. And surprisingly, like really surprised that this customer wanted to pay by credit card. Anyway, they wanted to pay by credit card. And uh, I did it through QuickBooks, actually. It wasn't international, it was domestic. And then I charged them the fee because I was like, well, we normally don't do credit card, but we'll do it. But just in our margin, we're not accounting for this. I also was thinking that they would revert back to bank transfer if I brought that up, but they didn't. They were just like, okay, fine. <laughs> so no big people deal. will prefer it for the convenience. Yeah, because the fee was like a significant amount. It was like a few hundred bucks. Yeah. I was just like, I'm not eating that. Like, <laughs> That's a lot, exactly. <laughs> especially for us, because like, I mean, we pay out a lot of what we collect. Right. So right. it was like, I'm not paying that out of my margin. <laughs> yeah. You can pay for the convenience. Yeah. It's like when you buy a ticket master. And it was a big enough right? company where I knew they were just going to be like, they're <laughs> like, whatever. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> um, yeah. You're right, though. That's an interesting thing is like QuickBooks. They need to start taking international payments. I know. That would be very helpful. But yeah. So for the positive feedback loops is basically saying like, look for leverage points around birth rates, interest rates, erosion rates, success to the successful loops, any place where the more you have of something, the more you have the possibility of having more. Yeah. And those are the areas you might need to correct or put in limits around. And it sounds like one thing that she doesn't explicitly it say. Also it also depends what the goal is too, yeah. right? Of the system. So it's like you might need to add it too. Right. I was gonna say the goal of a society is very different than a goal of a company. Yeah. So your goal of society might be you want to reduce income inequality. Let's say that's a pretty noble goal goal of your company is you want to grow like you might want to not every company but mm-hmm. you might want to grow as fast as you possibly can <laughs> so you create positive feedback right you, know, you create them right right exactly so yep. actually I, here's a good example of this 
So for Growth Machine, we give referral bonuses to friends who refer clients to us. And what it's up to now is like if somebody sends us a contract, we will give the person who refers it 20% of the first month's revenue on the contract. So it's like most of our projects are in the seven, eight K range. So somebody sends us something, they can make like fifteen hundred, two thousand dollars off that recommendation. It's great. (laughs) (laughs) A lot of my friends who run similar businesses will do a smaller amount that they give out every month of the contract. Ah, yeah. Right. And I thought about that, but the reason I think it's a bad idea is that it doesn't create the same incentives around like having people keep doing it. So it's an, that creates a negative reinforcement. Oh, because because they're getting the income every month. Exactly. They have less reason to keep referring people the more they refer people. Whereas with the one-time payment, you never get that negative feedback loop and arguably get a positive one because. So for you, it doesn't matter if the client stays for more than a month. Exactly. Okay. It's like, cause there are three or four month contracts to start off with. Okay. Got it. So you're de-risked at the beginning. De-risked from the beginning. Yeah. Yeah. But this way you're not creating that negative loop and kind of more of a positive one by just like having the one-time payments. I've heard that for salespeople too, that a better way to incentivize salespeople is a one-time upfront commission on the sale as opposed to a monthly commission on past sales. Yeah. Because that incentivizes them to keep closing new deals. Right, because you want to keep getting income. Exactly. So yeah. And also there's a recency bias as well. Let's say I got a $10,000 commission payment in January Mm -hmm. and then in February I didn't sell anything. I'm going to, even though I might have the money in the bank from the 10,000 one, if I was still getting like, let's say 3,000 a month paid out, right? I'd be like, well, I still have that 3,000 coming in, you know, instead of like, well, I got no income last month. Right. So I should probably step up this month and something. We're not good at spreading that stuff out. Right. We just think like, well, I made 10K in January and I've made nothing this month. (laughs) So that actually, I did work with a company, uh, they were like a consulting client back in like 2015 that did it that way, the way you're describing, which was like, you got paid out your commission on whatever deal you brought in, you got paid it out right away. And it was like, because their contracts were minimum 12 month. So, but you got your 12 month commission, even though their clients paid month to month. Right. Well, they paid monthly, but they were locked in for 12 months. You got your commission on all 12 months right away. So I remember I did have a month like that where I was like, I made 10K from this one client in, <laughs> in January. I think it was it was a January also. Yeah. I was super pumped up. And in my mind, I was like projecting that out. Then the next month, I did way worse than 10,000. Yep. And I was like, okay, I need to step up. <laughs> Even though like I didn't objectively actually do that much worse. It's just that all that commission got done at once. You yeah. didn't think of it as 800 per month. Exactly. I thought about it as 10K that month. That month. Yeah, yeah. So it forced me to like, as you're saying, if you're running that system, you want your salespeople to feel like they need to go out and really hit the pavement and work hard. Yeah. yeah. So that's a good point. It's a way to structure the incentives that way. Avoid the negative feedback. Yeah. So that number six is the structure of information flows. So who does and does not have access to information. And this is mostly about feedback and data. She gives a really fun example that there was a magazine that created like a annual list of the top 10 polluters. And one chemical company saw itself on its list and reduced its emission by 90% just to get off the list, right? So simply by sharing the information about what companies were polluting the most, this magazine made another company like reduce its emissions significantly just to like avoid public shame. Yeah, no, I love this one. I also like, um, she almost went there, but she talks about how uh, like if taxpayers got to specify on their return forms, which government services their payments would be spent on. 
That was one idea. I was thinking something even simpler, which is like, what if, let's say you're filing your taxes online. This obviously requires you to be in front of a computer. But as you file it or when you file it, it shows you like you paid $10,000 of taxes this year. 7,000 of them went towards paying interest on the debt or like, like it just like broke it down in like a pie chart, like $3 went to welfare, you know, like (laughs) it just like broke down like, okay, you personally paid $10,000. This is where each of those dollars went. I think people would like care a lot more about like where the money is going. Oh yeah. Right. Well, otherwise right now it's just, you just pay and you're just like, okay, like it's a black hole and that data is out there. Well, I've always felt that way about taxes that you should have some say in where that money is going within the government. Yeah. Well, I guess people would argue that like, well, that's what voting is for. That's your say, right? I also don't trust most of the country to make those decisions. Right. Exactly. <laughs> well, but I do think just even what she's talking about here is just the information flow. Yeah. So if it was just like everybody was aware of like, well, you spent $500 in taxes this year, like this is where each of those $500 went, right? And like 42 cents went to this and like $50 went to healthcare, you know, like just if you just broke it down. Those failed Lockheed Martin bombers. Yeah, (laughs) absolutely. Right. If you just broke that down, I feel like we'd have a much more, I don't know about objective is not the word I'm looking for, but just more like almost realistic outrage. Like people would be outraged at the right things. Yeah. Or maybe they'd be surprised too. Like I think there's a lot of talk around like how much like waste there is maybe among certain segments people say for welfare recipients like oh there's all this welfare fraud and like you know the food stamp people are just like stealing all of our money and it's like you really look at the amount of dollars that is let's say it's all a waste like just even assume that which is totally not true let's say that's true like dollar value wise that's like nothing of the federal budget like food stamps don't cost anything relative to like what other things cost like relative to like healthcare and relative to the military and relative to the interest on the debt and like all these different things. Welfare is like one of the smaller problems to go worry about. Right. But it's like um, an exciting it's talking high, point. It's not a high leverage point. Let's put it that way. Yeah. Yeah. Whereas like reducing military spending by 10% would be massive. That would free up so much money. So yeah, anyway, that information flow, I think, would lead to a lot of change or a lot of maybe different feedback. Different feedback, yeah, Yeah. or like more action, possibly. Or maybe same amount of action, but different directions. Different directions, yeah. Like that same energy would be applied differently. Well, because she gives the example of having more skin in the game, too. Yeah. She says, like, if you're a politician who wants to declare war, you have to go on the front lines. Your your kid has to go on the front lines, right? Like, that's going to make you think about it a little more carefully. That came up in the uh, Hiroshima Diary episode, actually. Yeah. We were talking about how the emperor was, like, getting called on to kill himself and for, you know, commit Harikari. Yeah. Yeah. For, I guess, uh, not shaming, but, like... Failing. Failing. Yeah. Yeah, losing. Well, we're actually seeing this kind of information flow publicity now with like reddit and the internet and senator donations yeah so i mean we just had the shooting in florida yeah right when we're recording this and one of the things that's come up on reddit a few times is lists of current politicians and how much money they've taken from the nra and that's kind of a public shaming access to information thing that's gotten very popular now Uh, it was the same thing with net neutrality right was publishing people who'd taken money from the cable companies i'll ask you a question okay how much do you think the nra donations actually make a difference define make a difference like in how they vote oh probably quite a bit really it's one of the biggest lobbies yeah but the dollar amount per like if you actually break it down i saw the same thing on reddit like the list of all the people who've taken the money and how much they took it's not actually that much relative to how much they raise like paul ryan took like 140,000. i think he raised like 30 million or something like it's like very small i personally think it's much more about the constituents like their constituents are supporters of the nra yeah and they're responding to that like if the nra is just sort of like they're giving out the money, how they're going to give out the money. But I think the NRA is like the boogeyman. I think it's much more about the people. 
Because, like, if their voters were, like, anti-gun, right, they would not be pro-gun for 140000 out of $30 million. Like, that would not be enough to buy somebody yeah. to lose the seat. You know well, what I, I mean? I actually don't think it's... I think there's two things there. One is that 140000 out of $30 million sounds low if most of the donations are lump sums like that, yeah. which I don't think they are. I think right. a lot of them are smaller amounts from, you know, local people, sure. whatever. Yeah. So it could actually be a big amount that for a love donation. That could be the biggest check. Could be, yeah. yeah. I think the other side to it, though, is that it's not actually about the amount that NRA donates. It's about the fact that they donated and that they allowed them to donate, right? They accepted the money because then they have endorsed by the NRA on their page and everything. Right. And so they're getting that support and they're using it as a tool. But that means their constituents care. Exactly. About that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So basically what I'm getting at is like, I think the money is like going back to this system. Okay. Because I was looking at those two things like simultaneously. We were reading this article and that stuff was going on last week. Right. I think the NRA dollars point is like rule 12. Mm. Like I think it's just the musical chairs type of thing. Yeah. Right. I think it's much more about the people's value systems are in that direction of their constituents. Right. right. I think that's like the higher leverage point essentially. Right. Is like you kind of have to change people's opinions on that before like worrying about the NRA part of it. Like I think that's a much lower level. Like if you were just like, oh, okay, okay well the NRA right. can't donate to any official, right? Yeah. I still don't think that would change voting outcomes that much in Congress. Yeah, it probably wouldn't because the people who are aligning with the NRA are aligning with that's what I'm talking. A certain about. political yeah. party. That's yeah, that's not going to change that much. Right. Maybe it'll change like slightly. Like you might change a vote here or there, but it's not like healthcare, which is like 50-50. Right. It's this is like one where it's like massively on one side. It's seemingly massively on one side. And the people who want, you know, total gun deregulation are going to want it whether or not an NRA exists. That's exactly what I'm saying. Yeah. Right? Yeah. It's on the ground level. It's not a... The NRA is almost a symptom of... It's like the, You could put any organization that, in there. Yes. Like, they are not special. They're that not was a bad way of me okay, making that exact point. Yeah, yeah. yeah. No, it took me a second to and get it. Like, well, it's like we all make the NRA like this. Just like, I mean, the people on the right make the Planned Parenthood a big boogeyman, right? Yeah. It's like, yes, you are correct, but it's also you're not... Like, that is not really what the problem... Or what you think the problem is. That's not... It's just a symptom of what you think the problem is. Yeah. Right. It's like the NRA is not what's causing people to be pro-gun. <laughs> yeah. It's like the other way around. The NRA exists American. because people are pro-gun. Yeah. It's like a very American thing. It's like being yeah. pro-car, right? Yeah. Like Americans love cars and Americans yeah. love guns. Yeah. And it's not like the NRA's fault. The NRA is, is popular because people love guns. They don't love guns because the NRA exists. That's what I'm talking about. Yeah, that's exactly what I'm saying. So that was a bad, like a very long-winded way of me <laughs> making that point. <laughs> yeah. I find the whole gun debate like really interesting. Yeah, so do I. I find it so difficult to, one, have a coherent discussion about it or to have a civilized discussion yeah. about it. There's not too many. And two, it's like, it's what? really... It's a good book about it. That's like a coherent, like in the middle, like these are the two sides. I don't have a good book, but have you read Sam Harris's The yeah. Riddle of the Gun? Yeah, it's yeah. a very good article. Actually, that would be a cool episode. That would be a cool episode too. Yeah, that is a fantastic Because I don't know about you, I'm very undecided on like the whole exactly. thing. I don't know if there is a right answer. I, I'm the same. I mean, the Cosette uh, and I were talking about this the other night where it was like, it's too hard to do it in New York, but yep. if we move to Austin, like I'm 100% getting a gun. Yeah. Right. Just because. We've talked about this on a Yeah, we've talked about yeah. it. Like it's, so would I. I mean, New York, it's almost not worth the hassle. Yeah. Well, it, depending on how much it hits the fan, maybe we'll be looking at this on hindsight. Yeah. Be in hindsight. Yeah, like, we should have got the gun. It was worth it to go through those hoops. <laughs> anyway, at the moment, it doesn't seem worth it. But um, yeah, in Austin, it would be pretty easy. Yeah. Right. And like, it's honestly, it's stupid not to. It's insurance. Considering the game theory, right? Yeah, it's like insurance. shit is the fan. Everyone else is going to have one. Yeah. Right. You want to be the one guy who doesn't you be have the one guy who shows up with a knife, right? And you don't even have water, so you're going to need one. <laughs> <laughs> Dude, I've got, I've got five bottles of wine now. I'm okay. 
You can trade those for water. You can trade those for Easily. water. Probably. That's yeah. like cigarettes. That's, That's like, like cigarettes. Yeah. <laughs> I don't know how much people are going to care about staying keto and low carb <laughs> in the apocalypse, but it lasts for like a week. It's like everyone hold up at Ben Greenfield's estate. <laughs> but Oh, man. But yeah, I mean, I, this is like a, it, it'll be fine in a month for us to be talking about this. I think if we're talking about this right now publicly, we'd get shit. But it's, Would we? The, the gun debate, it's so hard. I mean, and it's so interesting watching the online discussion because I follow a pretty even balance Same. of conservative and liberal people now. And I find both sides' arguments in this case pretty compelling yeah. because the case against the FBI in this instance is really embarrassing for yeah. the FBI. Like, they fucked it up so bad. It was an op-ed I read, which I can't verify if this fact is true or not, but I, in the op-ed at least, right, what the guy was arguing is that if the threats that they had gotten called in by this guy, if he had been mentioning any word like jihadi or ISIS or like anything like that, he would have been under like constant monitoring. But like, because he didn't say anything like that, it's like, all right, it's all good. Yep. It's fine. We're not going to, we don't care. <laughs> so that side of it is pretty compelling. Yeah. It's like, wow, the FBI really fucked up here. Yeah. And then on the other the side, it's messed up. Exactly. The system's messed up. And then on the other side, it's like, well, why does anybody have an AR 15 in the States? Yeah. Right. Like, that is a gun designed for killing people. It's yep. like a hunting rifle. Right. But then if you buy the it's for protection mm-hmm. argument, then like you should have a gun that can kill people. Yeah. Well, <laughs> you and, know what I mean? And like, there is honestly a compelling counter argument, which is like, well, look at all the other people who have AR-15s who don't go around right. killing people, right? And it, But then there's the other counter argument, which is like, you need a license to drive a car, which can kill people. Why don't you need a license to like, operate an ar-15 yeah right? it's like there's a good argument for that too well and i think i find that one just 100 like hands down compelling there's yeah. no way you should be able to buy it without right. a regular like the japanese system i like that a lot yeah, yeah. you have the right to buy it you have the right you to buy take it. a training course have to do training and have you to pass training yep. have to do it again every three years and i think you agree to random inspections as well yeah that like you're keeping the ammo separate from the exactly the gun a few rules like, like yeah. that there's also a lot of tech in the space i don't know if you've looked at that there's like smart um i mean that wouldn't have helped in this case obviously but like they're smart. Well, this would be more like prevent accidental shootings where it's like fingerprint based triggers and like safes. So, and stuff. Yeah. So yeah, it's like if you're quick open. Yeah. Whereas like your kid got a hold of your gun, it wouldn't shoot because it's not your fingerprint. Although the whole like, you know, if you get it, you're more likely to accidentally kill yourself. That data is another data set that's been like heavily tampered with. Is it like the mass shooting data? Kind where of. It's like, oh, there's been a mass shooting every day. It's like there's maybe. Reason, but. The reason the data looks like you're more likely to accidentally kill a family member is that they count suicides. Exactly. Oh, yeah. I, yeah. I figured. I've seen that as well. And that, so okay, like, honestly, when you're more mess- likely to accidentally shoot yourself than shoot somebody else, it's like, no, no, no. It's you're accident. more likely to intentionally yeah. shoot yourself than to protect your house. I actually really don't like, I mean, every side does this, but I really, like, if, if you have a side in the debate, for not just for this, but for anything, I really hate it when your own side doctors the data oh, yeah. because you're like, this actually undermines our point. Yeah. Like this is like the worst thing you could possibly do because now that sheds doubt on every other bit of data you're going to provide, right. even if it might be true. It's like, it makes it that much harder to take the yeah. one side seriously. It's like, then it makes it easy to be like, oh, they're just trying to take your guns. Like that makes it much easier to believe that. As soon as somebody has a straw man you can go after, it becomes so much easier to discredit all of their other viewpoints right. or arguments, which might be good. I see what you're saying. It is hard to have like a civilized debate about this. Yeah, it's really like, tough yeah, yeah. because the minute you say like, well, maybe some regulation would be good, you know, anybody in the hard conservative camp, like, yeah. but then I, you know, there's a lot of liberals you talk to where it's like, well, maybe we don't need to regulate AR-15s. We need to do something else. And then it's like, yeah. right. And well, AR-15s again, AR-15s seem like 0.12. 
Like, it seems like the end point of the system. You're right. And not, like, something higher level. Well, I, I actually think, like, you know Ben Shapiro? The guy who runs... I, I've heard the name, and I think I've seen maybe him on Twitter at some point, but I'm not... I don't know the context. I don't know what he does. He runs the Daily Wire, and he okay. runs his own podcast. He's, like, probably the most popular conservative commentator right now. And I like him a lot. What's the podcast? I haven't heard the podcast. I think it's the Ben Shapiro show. Okay. I don't agree with a lot of things he says, but I like respect how he presents them. He's a yeah. really good debater, arguer. And he's also like a conservative Jew. Like he wears oh, a yarmulke and stuff all the time. So it's like kind of a surprising dichotomy yeah. in that sense. And it's funny because he gets called like a Nazi because he's conservative affiliated, right? And so he's like, do you see this thing <laughs> yeah. on my head? But anyway, one of the things he did in response to this shooting is he said the Daily Wire will no longer publish names or photos of any mass shooters. Yeah, right? that's a good idea. And going back to this, it's like the goals of the system or the incentives, right? A much lower level point. It's yeah. like part of why people do these things is the fame, the right? Variety, yeah. If uh, I don't remember where I heard this, but it's a good thought experiment, right? Where I said like, Neil, you need to be the most famous person in the country tomorrow. Yeah. How do you do it? It's way easier to go do something bad than something That's good. the only way. Yeah. You need to be the most famous person in the country tomorrow. Right. That is the only way you yeah. do it, right? Yeah. Like, if you want that much attention, there is no better way. It's like, you, you need know. to be on every TV channel tomorrow. Yeah. It's yeah. like, th that's how you do it. And so, that's a really good the point. goal, yeah, like, if your goal is to get media attention, if you're feeling unappreciated, unspecial, right? It's like, even with Columbine, you know, the one kid thought he was like a genius, sort of like, Jesus reincarnated, underappreciated, yeah. right? And that was the way to get the message out. That's actually a really good idea that Ben Shapiro did then. Yeah. Well, a lot of, I think, France, I want to say all of France does that now. Is that a regulation? Is that a government regulation? Or? I don't think it's regulation. I think the government just asked. It was France or somewhere else where the government was just like, hey, you know, the data says this. Can you please just not post information? And the media, I was like, yeah, okay, that makes sense. I wish we'd do that. But it's never going to... It's never yeah. going to happen, though. It's never, I can never see CNN doing like... Yeah. <laughs> doing well, and honestly, this is where I think the citizen media is bad and like bloggers and everything. Because if you just have the three late night channels... I know, it's much easier to stop it. They can agree and they can be like, all right, yeah, we're not going to None do of this. us does it. It's like game theory, right? Exactly. It's like none of us does it. But if there's like a million players... The one blogger like, who does it, right, they're going to get a billion hits. So... Human suck. Yeah. <laughs> I also hate this is another thing I hate and this this is obviously a tangent but wherever yeah. we're on it is like when people compare other countries systems to the US as a one to one. Like you can take bits and pieces and try them out, right? And I think Japan's does give a lot to kind of a lot to play with and a lot to think about. Yeah. But it's still never going to be a one to one thing because there's not the amount of guns that we have here anywhere else. Right. right? And it's like this is the starting state of the system. So it's kind of like when you want to talk about like stopping the spread of nuclear weapons it's way easier to like stop the program from beginning in a new country than to like reduce the stockpile to zero in a country that already has them so basically asking them to give up all their leverage to give up their <laughs> yeah. yeah their military force right right so it's like that's a much tougher argument well and i <laughs> there, there's something i saw on twitter the other day too which was like a photo from australia it was a giant dump truck unloading a truckload of rifles into like a ditch oh interesting because i guess they had some gun reclamation program after we some shooting we have them here too actually where we, the police departments will pay we'll pay for your okay. weapon yeah some people do them like they do collect but so the tweet context was like this is what australia did after a mass shooting happened there and it's like dumping out all the rifles but they're all hunting rifles ah right and so it's one of those funny things with incentives too, where the people who I've heard that give heard it that. up in a reclamation are the ones you need to worry about least, right? right? Yeah, that's true. If you're going to give up your weapon when there's like a 
police reclamation project, you're probably never going to commit a mass shooting to begin with. Exactly. So, and I, I do think that the, oh, well, people who want to get them will get them anyway argument is flawed. It's a little too simplistic. Yeah. You can make it harder. You can make it harder. You can definitely yeah. make it, so you can reduce the number probably by doing that. And, and that's the other thing. Everybody goes into these all or nothing arguments where it's like, if it's not going to be 100% effective, you can't do anything. And it's don't like, do it. Yeah. I don't know. It's like wearing seatbelts. Yeah. People are still going to die in car accidents. But like fewer, it's going to help. Yeah. yeah. So, I mean, the the other thing, and we'll, we'll get off the gun topic in a second, <laughs> but I, I have a feeling people like maybe there aren't that many nuanced conversations about this because you can tell we do not have a like we don't know what our yeah, position is. I have is. no idea. What I don't know is. what my position is either. But I do know that if I had the choice tomorrow between banning AR-15s and banning handguns, handguns hand down. Yeah. Right. Oh, yeah, definitely. And, and this is what gets lost is like the three, four, five people every day who get killed by handguns so far outweighs these mass shootings. We were talking about that. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. It's but like the number, but it's never a. You don't, you don't have gangsters in Southside Chicago walking around with AR 15s, right. right? Shooting up each other. It's like, well, these and it's, guns. it's funny if you have most. So I was talking to my dad over the weekend about this, and like, you know, he doesn't know a ton about guns, and like, neither do I, obviously, but he was under the impression that like and, and people don't know what assault versus automatic is yeah. either well assault rifle isn't a real thing right exactly <laughs> yep so he was like oh he's like there's no reason somebody should have a machine gun and i'm like he didn't have a machine gun yeah like that's not what it was even though the media and you see the picture on tv it looks like a really scary gun it looks like something you use in call of duty right like this like massive machine gun looking thing but it's not a machine gun that is not legal in the united states right now like you cannot go buy a machine gun but that's a lot of people don't know that. A lot of people do not know that those are illegal completely. You just as a normal citizen cannot go buy one. There are people who have them. There are gangs that have them. I think you can have it if it's like a war relic. Yes. Collector's yeah, item. Yeah, there are. Right? But none of these mass shootings, let's be clear, yeah. are not using <laughs> no those. Yeah, yes. exactly. <laughs> well, and this is a big thing I've heard, too, as a very legitimate criticism of the media, yeah. is that you get all these reporters who don't know the difference right. between I saw that, machine yeah. gun, automatic, semi-automatic, submachine gun, assault rifle, right? Like, And I'm not 100% sure on the distinction, too. No, but, but we know that it's not an automatic rifle or a machine gun. Right. You're not just holding down the trigger and shooting hundreds of bullets. For you know, at a time that because that is a uh, and we're getting out. I'm getting out of my technical depth here, but I think there is a version of the AR-15 that is like that that can go full automatic. I think it's the M4. Oh, it's the M4. I think it's the M4. Yeah, yeah, which is used by the military. Yeah, yeah. You can't buy that version as a citizen. Right. You can only buy the the semi-automatic. Yeah. 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 But and that's like part of the problem is that and this is where I can totally understand the outrage from people who are in favor of guns is that if you hear somebody condemning something you are interested in without understanding it at all. Right. Yeah. Right. Like that has got to be just incredibly frustrating. Right. It's kind of like when I listen to science on the news sometimes. Right. Like people condemning science research and they just have no idea what they're talking about. <laughs> or people say like red meat gives you heart disease like, yeah, like right oh, off the bat. Yeah. It's like, right oh, my God. Right. Remember the bacon causes cancer thing? Oh, yeah. Right. It was like, you know, processed meats are a class one carcinogen up with tobacco. So like and then the extrapolation from that was bacon is as bad for you as smoking. It's like, no, 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 no. That, that is not at all what that research said. But it's sort of like they don't read the research. I like how much of the science that floats to the top is like the most clickbaity shit. Oh, like last yeah. week or two, it was two weeks ago, maybe the McDonald's fries cure balding. Oh, oh, yeah. <laughs> I was like, this is definitely not. <laughs> so it is some byproduct of the process. Or it's not the only yeah. place where this compound is created, but it happens to also be a byproduct of frying fries. 
And they somehow linked that to curing baldness. So now the takeaway was eating McDonald's fries <laughs> will cure your baldness. But here's the worst thing. You know that's bullshit. I know that's bullshit. And we just spread it. And we just spread it. No, no, no. <laughs> but I still clicked on it. So did, did you click on it? I clicked on it. It worked. I know. Yeah. <laughs> I know. But I had to see. I had, had to, to see. You had to find out. Had to know. <laughs> yeah. It's like maybe, just maybe, maybe, right? Although we, we both have pretty good heads of hair, so we're okay. Yeah. Right yeah. Exactly. If anyone's listening, it can't hurt to try. <laughs> It can definitely hurt to try. Don't don't listen to Go that. Go on the McDonald's diet if you're bald. Like, <laughs> just fries every day. Super size me. Part two. Super hair me. <laughs> People start like making shampoo out of McDonald's fries. That's a horrible. Stop idea. using shampoo and you just rub some McDonald's grease on your head. Oh, Neil, your hair is so Why shiny that today. Neil, you have hair. No, it smells. Just, it yeah. smells delicious. <laughs> Pepper is like trying to climb on your head. Yeah. <laughs> All right, McDonald's, All right. you can pay us for that one tomorrow. Yep. Thanks, <laughs> I think we're on what? Rule five, five now. Which we've talked about a lot now. The rules of the system. Yeah. So everything that we've talked to before now is less important than the rules of the system they are operating in. Yep. And I mean, the government's a perfect example of it, right? You know, Trump might be a really bad president, but there are at least rules that prevent him from doing certain things. Yep. It'd be a lot worse if he was designing his own government. Yeah. Right, that would be a lot worse. That would be a very different world. Yeah, or yeah, depending on your perspective, it would be worse. Or a lot better. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah, that's true. But so. it, this is true for companies too. It's like it's kind of like being a, a finite player versus like the player designing, like the infinite. Exactly. Player. This is where that starts. I this feel is like. that boundary. This is the boundaries. Yeah. So this is like if you are an employee within a company, you can kind of do your best within that system to maximize, you know, your performance or your compensation or whatever it is. This is like getting to play with the rules around uh, compensation, let's say, yeah. or the rules around like when you have meetings or like, yeah, like all the different rules, basically. Which I, has been a very fun part of, I think, being a founder in general. I love it. Yeah. Is, and this is a kind of a funny example. Probably God complex is coming into play a little here, bit. right? Yeah. But like, so we use JustWorks for all of our payroll benefits, everything processing. Yep. And it's fun logging into there and looking at it as an administrator and as an employee. Mm. Where it's like, oh, what benefits do I want to enroll the company in and all the employees? And then it's like, oh, what benefits do I get for myself? Yeah. And just sort of like- Because you're both a finite and infinite player. In exactly. You're yep. a player in the game and you're playing with the game. Yeah. And it's sort of fun to get to walk both of those lines. And it's, it's actually good too, because you probably see where any problems are in designing the system. Because you'd be like, oh, I don't like this. And then it's like, well, I'm the one who designed the system, so I should probably fix this. If you got shitty healthcare for your company, you'd be like, hmm, I don't know. This boss sucks. That's what I was going to say is- Spending an extra few hundred dollars a month per employee on very good healthcare seems like a no-brainer relative to the cost of finding and retaining talent. Yeah. Right? And it seems like something people really care about. Yeah. And also, vision and dental are like basically free. Mm -hmm. I did not realize how cheap that stuff was. Yeah. So actually, Mom Trusted, uh, shout out to momtrusted.com, my first job after uh, graduating college. That was one thing they did really well. They were like just a seed-funded company, so the comp wasn't like insane from yeah. a dollar standpoint. But their benefits were awesome. They actually, I still haven't worked for a company that ever did this. They covered all healthcare and dental and vision. So you paid nothing out of pocket whatsoever. And I love it. Like it was awesome. It was probably better for like everybody I talked to when I mentioned that before taking the job was like, oh, you need to take this job. Yeah. Like, nobody does that, which I didn't realize till I got another job later and they didn't do that. And I was like, 
wait, I have to pay out of pocket for medical? I See, like I didn't realize. So, like, I've never had a real job. Yeah. And so I didn't realize that wasn't a thing either. And so that's what we do. We cover all of it. And then people were like, whoa, this is like such an awesome deal. Or yeah. it's like, but it just seems like obvious. Right. right. Like, why wouldn't a company do that? Right. Well, that's what I always thought benefits were at that yeah. time. I was like, oh, like, yeah, when you have a full-time job, you have benefits, which includes paying for healthcare. I didn't realize it was like most companies, it's like a portion of your healthcare. Right. Because I think all a company has to pay is half of the cheapest plan they offer. Right. Yeah. So depending on what plan somebody goes with and how many family members they have. And I think if you're below a certain number of employees, they don't have to pay for anything. True. So I think, you know, for most, some smaller companies, they don't pay for anything. <laughs> well, the 401k thing too is huge. Where Are you doing like, that? Yeah, yeah. I, I'm just setting it up now. But being able to offer like a good 401k with matching, where it's literally just like an extra free amount of money for people to invest. Yeah. It's like there's all these little things that I understand if a company has like more difficult revenue and Absolutely, stuff, yeah. then it, you, it's a harder to offer it. Right. But this is like a way to retain talent and attract talent. And attract talent. In a way that is essentially like probably cheaper in the long run than just increasing salary because let's say if you offer matching like how much are people going to put in a month it's usually four percent so four percent so so what do you think that is like an average it's going to be like maybe a couple hundred bucks right right whereas like increasing someone's salary by twenty four hundred dollars probably has less of that impact like twenty four hundred dollars for the annual salary well and here's the thing people forget about is that employers have to pay tax on their salaries right but you don't have to pay it on the stuff you're matching. You're just doing a contribution. You know, one thing I found too, when I don't know if you're hiring salespeople or if you have a full-time salesperson, one thing I've seen companies do that, that as an employee I've really enjoyed and that I'm doing as well now mm-hmm. is uh, offering like an expense account for salespeople. Oh, you yeah. You can't do it for regular employees because there's kind of shady to do it for regular employees. But if you have salespeople who are regularly on calls, they go out to meetings with people, that kind of stuff, you can cover their like, transportation costs Uh, so basically you give them like a set dollar amount per month that they can apply things towards so like their phone bill they can apply a portion of their you know their phone bill towards that and you reimburse them at the end of the month and same thing with like transportation and if they take a client out to dinner like they can put that on there right so for you it's a predictable cost per month but for them it's like okay well now i'm not paying you know my hundred dollars a month for my phone bill and internet right it's like i'm only paying thirty dollars a month it's just like for them, it counts as compensation, really. Yeah. Like they feel like it's compensation, but you're not paying employer tax on that. Right. And well, so it's, it's like, only cost you five. If it, you give them a $500 a month expense account, it's just $500. It's not $500 plus Medicare plus Social Security. Yeah. So well, it's kind of like we have a lot of friends who are consultants. Yeah. And they get their per diem when they're on client projects. Yep. But you can also do that for your own company where if you're working from home and you order lunch, like that can be a company lunch. Right. Right. And so there's a lot of stuff you can do like that whenever you travel, like flights, Ubers, all of that. Like that's all company travel. Exactly. And then that's all kind of pre-tax money. And so what we're doing, what I'm doing, at least for now, is like for my employees, it's like they can all do that as well. It's like just get awesome people and keep them super happy and just like give everyone a great life. Yeah. It's much better than I think being stingy in the long run. Well, and it's hard to hire good people. So yeah, if you have really you hard to hire like good people. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> so, I mean, relating to this, right? <laughs> that was another good tangent. I don't know if this is the wine kicking in, but we've been going on some tangents. Dude, lately. this has been great tangents. Yeah. Well, I think it's fun when it's a shorter piece. Yeah. Because we feel like we have more freedom to tangentialize, right? right? <laughs> like, I love it. When it's, when it's 12 rules for life and we know we have like an obscene yeah. amount of stuff to get through, we're just like boom, 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 Skin boom, boom. Skin in the game is going to be the exact same uh, way. We're just going to be... Way. 
Yeah, I think we'll be pretty orderly Maybe. probably during that. We'll see. <laughs> Whereas with this, it's nice because we can kind of flow off. And I mean, bringing it back here, right? The rules of the system also includes the incentives, punishments, and constraints. Right. And if you're changing how the system is, you know, rewarding people for acting in it, you can get a much different system out of it. Uh, and it's kind of like we talked about the salespeople, right? Upfront commission versus ongoing commission. I mean, honestly, I think about this one a lot with Pepper training her, right? Where it's like the minute she does something bad, I have to find some way to disincentivize that behavior right. without kind of outright punishment. Because punishment doesn't really work for dogs. They don't get it. So you have to find a way to make them think that they are asking for something they don't want. Oh, okay. Right? So one of the things for her is like if she chews anything she isn't supposed to chew, she gets time out in the kitchen. Hmm. Right? So it's kind of like, oh, you're chewing my pant leg. You want to go in the kitchen? Okay. Ah, okay. So she'll start thinking I should only do that when I want to go in the kitchen. Exactly. Yeah. Which oh, is basically never because when she's in there, she's locked off from all right. her toys and right. me and all happiness. So she never wants to do that. Yeah. yeah. And that works super well. That's really smart. She gets that. That's really, really uh, smart. <laughs> but you have to like be strict about the rules of the system. Yeah. So, and then I guess the level above that, which is number four, is the power to add, change, evolve, and self-organize the system structure which is kind of is like five is when you move from finite to infinite player yeah. and four is almost like when you decide who else gets to be an infinite player right it was sort of how i interpreted it yeah i was thinking about this actually earlier today i tweeted i think you saw the tweet which was like that it's cool when if you're building like a platform and you see your customers actually use that platform in different ways than you you ever could have imagined yeah that's kind of like this rule that i thought of so when you give someone a platform you're basically giving them a capability and then you have certain ideas in mind for how people should use that capability or would use that capability, but you don't necessarily restrict it to that. Right. So you let them kind of like take the capability and do whatever they want with it. And it's really interesting to see where people take things that you would have never thought of because you obviously aren't an omnipotent being that can do and know everything. Were you so, referencing the keto caveman uh, no 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 thing. there was oh, another okay. one yeah so there's a there's this like agency that we recently started working with and um it's in the music industry which is just something i just would have never really i don't know anything about the music how besides like being a consumer of music yeah. i don't know like anything about the industry so yeah we started working with this agency and they had a whole bunch of different ideas for how to use what we do and solving pain points that they have which i never would have even known were pain points but it's just kind of cool it's it's like people can also be infinite players within your system yeah. that you designed, which is really interesting. Exactly. It's like multiple levels of... Yeah, it was, it's, just, it's yeah. a really cool feeling. And it's also, it's weird. It's like on some level, it's like, I don't have kids, but I'd imagine it's somewhat like what having kids would be like, mm -hmm. where you obviously, you know, you might have, somebody might have given birth to a child and then that child does things which like you would have never thought to do or like has a brain of its own almost. Well, do your parents feels that way, tell you that like with sometimes some yeah. of your work stuff? Yeah. I feel like I get that reaction from my parents sometimes where it's like, yeah, where it's like they would not know, like they almost don't know what you're working on. Yeah. Or it's yeah. just like, it's so beyond anything that they grew up with. Yeah. Honestly. I think my parents always describe that much more to technology than to like anything else where they're like, oh, like you're so much more familiar with how these things work than we are, but they probably mean something slightly different. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, to bring it, because I feel like I have to relate everything to my dog now. It's like when she's she, the third co-host. So. Exactly. Yeah. She's, yeah. She's being good now. She's, she's being quiet. The chair. Yeah. Probably the wine. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> we don't. We do not feed pepper wine. <laughs> when she volunteers a behavior that she thinks I want without me asking for it, right? Then it's kind of like, oh wow, okay. It's like there's something going on in there. Ah, interesting. Right. Where? Uh, what's a good example of this? Like her toy was stuck in her crate earlier, and the door was closed, so she couldn't get to it. 
and she kind of knows that like she needs to sit down to say please. So like she has to sit before she gets her food, before she gets treats, before she gets to come to the bathroom, like any of that stuff. And so she just walked over and just like sat next to her crate. That's really good. That was pretty cool. I was like, oh wow, like that I means she associated she that. the yeah yeah. She's like, okay, I do this when I want something, and I'll just like sit by this thing, and yeah. then I'll hopefully get the thing that I want. Right? It's kind of cool. It's kind so, of like we were talking about this on uh, not last episode, one of the episodes about uh, religion. Right. Or like the rain dance. type. Yeah, stuff, exactly. Right. It's kind of like the that. suspicious behavior. Right. Where it's it's like you associate this behavior with superstitious this outcome. behavior. Yeah. 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 You associate like doing this thing with this outcome and you just do it. Kind more. Of keep doing yeah. it. Right. It's kind of it makes you see like maybe where something like that could have arisen. Yeah. Like from a, if you're thinking about it purely from like an atheistic perspective. Well, and right, you can I definitely mean, see it coming to this. You can see how that would create new systems. Oh, absolutely. Right. Yeah. Because if you're allowing and almost like what you were talking about earlier between bottom up and top down, it's like bottom up is great in the beginning. I think of a business or an organization's life cycle where everybody can contribute to the system structure, but eventually that will be a problem. You yeah, can't have everyone crazy. changing how things work. Right. Yeah. So you sort of have to restrict this, you know, fourth level of system intervention right. where eventually it's like, all right, the only the people to at the top. Exactly. Change. It's the power. Yep. It's the ability to change how the system operates. Well, it's like we're all part of the U.S. government system. Not all of us who are listening, but like us two at least are right. part of the U.S. government system as citizens. But we don't necessarily have the power to write laws. And thankfully, no individual does. Right, which is great. You've got the yeah. whole checks and balances thing, yeah. which we're all pretty So good. in the U.S. system, it's like a distributed power power right. that is then granted to different individuals who win elections which are i guess supposed to represent the will of the people in that region and george soros yeah of know. course yeah <laughs> <laughs> according the to illuminati yeah <laughs> um yeah wait what was, so there's this point she made about uh oh so there's just this quote which i thought was really interesting yeah i had this in my notes too the the intervention point here is obvious but unpopular Encouraging variability and experimentation and diversity means losing control. Let a thousand flowers bloom and anything could happen. Who wants that? Let's play it safe and push this leverage point in the wrong direction by wiping out biological, cultural, social, and market diversity. Find that to be really, really interesting. And I actually think it relates to like Airbnb and Uber and a lot of like the new platforms coming out. Okay. So like you hear, at least maybe I've been paying more attention to Airbnb lately. There's a lot of like sort of neighborhood negative reaction to airbnb for some you know some legitimate reasons for sure but it, they've almost become like this boogeyman for how like all the rent issues in the country uh, which is like totally not true and it's sort of like a new model right for hospitality and for even just thinking about your rent like if you paid for rent for this apartment but you want to go travel you could rent out right. the apartment like at scale when airbnb is at it as, as a mature company it's kind of a new way to think about the rent that you pay Right. I view that as like almost like you would view species diversity. Like it's another model. It's another possible model for how rent, like the quote rent system could work. And then like the old model is like, okay, you have a landlord and a tenant and that tenant's like always there. So you have all these like different sort of different models. Right. And I think that's one of the beauties of like the free market capitalism system, which is like you can test out all these different models and like people are essentially voting by which companies they go use. Right. Obviously, that brings up some big issues around like whoever has more money has a bigger vote in the system. But it's kind of like this idea of like if you have a free market economy, you could have a quote thousand flowers bloom, a thousand different companies, thousand different ideas. 
and let the marketplace figure it out. But that's kind of scary, right? It's like, who wants that? Yeah. Right? Rather play it safe. It works well for some things. Right. So, well, and then it's also like default reaction, I I would say for most people is like, that's scary. Let's just keep the status quo. But that might not be the best solution, right? right? So it's just, I mean, it depends on the situation you're looking at. But I think there's like, that's part of what makes the free market the free market. Exactly. Yeah. Um, all right. We've talked about three a lot, yep. which is the goals but of the system. Goals of the system. So whatever the system is trying to do is one of the highest leverage points. And this is actually probably the highest leverage point that is related to the system itself. Because numbers one and two are sort of beyond the actual system yeah they're like metaphysical yeah yeah yeah. three is the last one that's actually within the system you know that you're considering uh she talks about a lot of different areas here you know one is obviously business she talks about like the goal of keeping the markets competitive has to trump the goal of each corporation to eliminate its competitors companies are sort of like highly competitive invasive species in an ecosystem right Right. they They want want everything else to die right they want to own the whole environment but the goal of keeping markets open so people can fight has to trump you know any of their individual goals of winning it's like antitrust law yeah and i think we're seeing that in tech right now where it's becoming you know i think there's a very honest criticism of google facebook amazon uber of the power they have in the economy yeah probably Amazon in particular. Yeah. But then there's also a weird question of how do you break it up? Because it's a fully integrated system and there's not a clear way to spin out the different businesses uh, without them all just kind of collapsing. With the exception of AWS. Yeah, I, could I guess you could, you could see an out. argument for spinning AWS out in yeah. its own company. That, that and then Amazon's like a customer clear. of AWS at exactly. that point. Yeah. yeah. That's the only one. That That's I've really heard. the only one. I mean, yeah. Google would be really hard to know how you break that up. Yeah. Well, especially like Gmail versus like Google versus like yeah. Google Docs. And like, right. I mean, like I get the alphabet thing. I think that was probably smart of them. That was, a good that was probably a good idea. antitrust yeah. <laughs> like, uh, foresight. Really. Like, okay, we'll do this and that's going to protect us. Yeah. Uh, Facebook's another one, right? Unless they forced Facebook to break up its constituent main apps of WhatsApp, Instagram, the Facebook core, Messenger. I could see that. I think Scott Galloway has been pushing for that. Like, I think he was saying that, I, I know he had a suggestion for Google too, but I don't know how he suggested breaking it up. But anyway, for Facebook, that was the main one I remember, which was like breaking it up into the constituent apps. So like Instagram's its own thing and WhatsApp's its own thing. Which they've already done smartly yeah it's probably another preemptive move on their part i I actually think for facebook it's because they knew facebook core was dying because if you look at the charts for user engagement and stuff on facebook core it is way down yeah it's really bad you know i heard it's saved by the other apps. i heard for the first time from people who are like the generation older than us they are like the core of facebook demographic and people in that generation are even increasingly using facebook less yeah I heard a bunch of complaints about it about it recently. I think I after like, the election and the tendency towards like, for lack of a better term, share spam or tag spam, yeah. where it's like, oh, tag somebody you know who like, right? Or the political outrage porn, right? Just like optimizing for engagement. I think people realized it was making them unhappy. Instagram's like a much happier place yeah. than Facebook. Uh, but it's the same company, so... Same company, yeah. but people seem... Like, it is a happier experience. I have much less problem going to Instagram once in a while than right. I do going to my newsfeed. <laughs> Facebook, I almost always regret. Yeah. And Instagram, I'm like, usually it's a good experience. It's much harder to complain on Instagram. It is, yeah. yeah. <laughs> it's, it's pretty hard. I mean, you complain in your stories, maybe. Like, sure. oh, having a shitty day. I actually have not been watching stories. That's the thing. Lately, yeah. Just don't watch stories, go yeah. through the feed, good to go. Because people... Well, this is obviously... We're 
looking at people's biased accounts, but we're only looking at like their happy moments usually when they post an actual picture. And for whatever reason, it's like less the volume of negative or complaining type of posts are much less on Instagram. I also find it's easier to follow influencers on Instagram than Facebook because Facebook punishes them. Well, also on Facebook, it is mean if you aren't friends with somebody who you actually know in real life. Whereas like on Instagram, like there's a bunch of people I know that I just don't follow. Although the, they made a change recently, which I hate, which is that you can now see if somebody doesn't follow you back. Oh, really? Okay. Yeah. So I haven't you, seen that. If someone is following you and you are not following them, then it says instead of follow, it says follow back on their profile. So you can tell. So you can tell. You could unfollow someone quickly and then see like if it says follow back and then you can follow them again. It, it's a little obviously like. So it's not as clear as like Twitter. It's not as clear as Twitter exactly, but you can still see that data. Whereas before you couldn't, which I liked, right? Because then. Yeah, it incentivized like actually following people who you want to, want to follow. Yeah, yeah, see the photos of. The, the one other thing that's worth mentioning with this level about goals is how she f- says that, you know, we, we talked about in the beginning, obviously changing one player in the system. It's just a parameter. It doesn't affect much. Yeah. The exception to that is when a new exceptional player can change the goals of the system. And reading from the book, she says, I have watched in wonder as only very occasionally a new leader in an organization from Dartmouth College to Nazi Germany comes in, enunciates a new goal and swings hundreds or thousands or millions of perfectly intelligent, rational people off in a new direction. And I think the perfect example we have from recent history is Trump and Russia. Yeah. Where he's had a fairly pro-Russia or at least not anti-Russia rhetoric. And whereas the conservative party was historically very anti-Russia and Russia anti-Soviet. Yeah. Now they're pretty like, oh yeah, no, Putin seems like a cool guy. Right? <laughs> like, the, the polls have completely changed <laughs> Yeah, in that sense. And so it's scary. It's very surprising, that. actually. Really surprising when you, if you really break it down into ideology, it's like, this doesn't make any sense. It's amazing whatsoever. how fast that switch happened. Yeah. But it did. And it's like one player in the system was able to do that despite yeah. the other limitations, right? Despite the other constraints. So. Yeah. This is the one area where an individual in a highly complex system can have an outsized impact is by changing the goals that people are rallying around. Yeah. And I think it's, this is going to sound not like the point I'm trying to make, but I'm going to say it anyway. It's like, it is very rare, but I mean, Hitler is probably the best example of it. It's like Nazi Germany was historically, I mean, Germany has a lot of Jewish people and it's not really an anti-Semitic place there's probably an anti-semitic strain in the population somewhere right where some people were and he tapped into that and sort of expanded that he kind of made that a thing yeah through you know his own sort of issues and (laughs) beliefs that he had right but like that's not a representative thing of germany as a whole right it's like it's never been the mainstream kind of thing but for a brief period of time he made the system where that was kind of like the goal of the system was to exterminate jewish people one of the goals of the system I mean, I think, I guess what I'll say instead is the equally impressive thing is how quickly it swung back. Right, exactly. That's a great point. It's like a lot of that shows how it has to do with one individual where that you remove that individual from the system and it reverts back to like historical equilibrium, essentially. Yeah, exactly. I've heard that about Margaret Thatcher in England too. Oh, interesting. Whereas the kind of UK economy was trending more towards kind of Scandinavian socialism and Margaret Thatcher was very instrumental in pulling it back more towards a free market capitalist economy instead of 
uh, more like Norway, Sweden style. And that's part of why the pound has continued to be such a strong currency in the world. Yeah, it bounced back recently, which I, I just oh, saw. Oh, yeah. Yeah, because I, I follow it much more, I guess, right. than <laughs> most people would. But it, you more than most It was like 1.2 or even less for like $1.2 per pound for a while yeah. after Brexit. Now, I think at least I checked last week, it was 1.4. Oh, so nice. it's gone like that. I think historically it's like 1.7. Yeah. Uh, well, that was the euro, the pound. Actually, no, this is the pound. This is the yeah, because the pound had gone down, gone down a ton. Quite a it was it went from like 1.7 to 1.2 during Brexit, which oh, is like yeah. a huge change. Well, was, which is why was, it's pretty cheap to go to the UK right now. I was gonna say I was yeah. in Paris when Brexit happened. Okay. And my like effective net worth, it's something like went up 30 percent overnight. Yeah. In, it was like in Paris. In Paris, because yeah. the euro, well, dropped, the euro too. dropped too. Yeah. Yeah, it went from like 1.2 to 0.9 or something. Wow. Yeah. Right? I was like, whoa, okay, this is great. <laughs> I mean, I still think there's still on some uncertainty on if it's going to happen, how it's going to happen, all this stuff. But Yeah, what will actually entail. I mean, this is a separate podcast episode, but I definitely think that there's an argument to be made for dissolving the monetary centralization of the Eurozone. I think it's right? fragile. Like, it could be a fragile system. It's so fragile. Yeah. And that's how you get economies like Greece. Mm-hmm. Because when you can't control your monetary policy, you kind of get screwed. Right. And yeah. like, you have crashes like that. Right. You can't use the normal levers other countries can use. Right. Or if you use them, it hurts other countries that might have an outsized yeah. influence. Well, Germany's not going to pull that of lever course. for you. They're exactly. not going to inflate their currency so that you can save your economy. Also, especially in a region where you don't have that historical identity as right. being one entity. I mean, historically, Europe's like been at war. Non-stop. <laughs> Non-stop yeah. for like hundreds and hundreds of years. So like to all of a sudden expect like Germany and France to be like, one has a perverse incentive to go one way, one has a perverse incentive to go the other way. Mm-hmm. Then to expect them to like, in mutual sort of arm in arm situation like do the same thing it's it's hard enough to make a nation state right right like paris and nice are basically different countries totally and so to put them and say like hey this is france now yeah that's one thing right to also say that okay now france also has to play nice with everyone else well it's like scotland and england right or like historically not the same thing but okay you're gonna put them as one nation sure sort of the same thing but now put them in greece it's yeah. the same thing. <laughs> now like, you all have the same monetary policy. Yeah, it's right? like, I don't know. <laughs> no. Uh, yeah, I mean, it's almost like the Russia-Crimea thing, right? Yeah. Where it's like, oh, this is ours. No, it's ours. No, it's ours. I don't know, yeah. right? Like, it's a weird, I mean, the borders, we treat them like they're set in stone, right? right? Like, they're these real definite really. thing. But that's a really new yeah. thing, yeah. Yep. It used to just be you had cities and then kind of no man's land in between them that was sort of controlled by certain cities at certain times i do think we'll go back to something like that i think we'll have to i'm a big believer in like the city state idea yeah i think it'll be like military zones that you pay tax to plus city states or something it's hard to imagine what it would look like i know we haven't seen it in our life yeah obviously yeah besides maybe like hong kong or like but hong kong is surrounded by a country right right exactly that's that's where it gets tricky i can imagine a hong kong and a singapore and stuff in the u.s yeah but what is in between right right like what does iowa become right i don't know i don't know yeah for more on this more on this sovereign individual individual. (laughs) (laughs) episode something four seven (laughs) yes it's it's in in the first 10 it's It's in in the the first 10 yeah can you imagine what it's like for like joe rogan yeah, he's like, done over a thousand exactly. episodes. We're like, we're like, yeah, we've done, we feel like we've done so many. We're all like, yeah. what is this, like 27 or something, 26? Like yeah. yeah. <laughs> and Joe Rogan's on like a thousand something. Yeah, for him to be like, yeah, episode 702. We just need to print out while we're recording. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, we do have our iPads in front of us, but we just got to teach Pepper how to do research. Yeah. She can be our Jamie. <laughs> <laughs> Ever, uh, what episode was Sovereign Individual? Yeah, you exactly. get a treat. If you- <laughs>
<laughs> All right. She gets her own iPad. There we go. Yeah. Number two. Clearly, we've had too much wine. <laughs> <laughs> but hey, we're still keto. Yeah, uh, that's true. <laughs> number two is the mindset or paradigm out of which the system, its goals, structure, rules, delays, parameters, arises. So number three is the goals. Number two is the mindsets that those goals come from. This rule, or this, I guess, rule, whatever it is. Is this a rule? I guess. Yeah, call it a sort rule. Of, it's not yeah. all rules for life, but yeah, call, call it a rule. This this one in the in the Leverage list. point. Yeah, this leverage point reminded me of Sapiens. Mm, yeah. Because it's like the mythology. stories that we tell ourselves. Yeah. Well, and that's how she leads this section is, and I'll just read from here where she's listing off some of these assumptions. And she says, the shared idea in the minds of society, the great big unstated assumptions, unstated because unnecessary to state, everyone already knows them, constitute that society's paradigm or deepest set of beliefs about how the world works. There is a difference between nouns and verbs. Money measures something real and has real meaning. Growth is good. Nature is a stock of resources to be converted to human purposes. Evolution stopped with the emergence of Homo sapiens. One can own land. Those are just a few of the paradigmatic assumptions of our current culture, all of which have utterly dumbfounded other cultures who thought them not the least bit obvious. Yep. Sapiens is like a perfect book for this because he gives the example in there that if you went back 8,000 years and you talked about owning land. Right, people would be like, what are you talking what about? What are you talking about? Like, yeah. No, you just, you just walk somewhere new. Right? Yeah. Like, what are you going to do if I walk over there? Right? Right. Yeah. It's like an utterly absurd thing. Yeah. But it was necessary as a conceptual meme to protect farming energy. Right. right. It's like you put all this time into farming land. We need property rights so that you don't you know, just get your land taken and feel right. like you wasted your time. Right. As soon as the harvest happens, yeah. you're just like, zoop. Yep. <laughs> it's mine now. Yeah, but no, but this is kind of like the shared mythology. It's like when we always talk about like for fiat currency, right? It's like the idea that it has value. The idea that the dollar that I get paid today can be converted to food tomorrow. Yeah. That is a myth, essentially, that we all just believe. Yeah. Which is why it works. Right. If tomorrow we didn't believe that, it wouldn't work. One shared mythology or semi-shared mythology I've noticed recently that I don't buy into, but I've, I've seen it like it seems tautological to other people is that real things are more valuable than digital things, Mm. right? So one argument I hear against Bitcoin is like, well, it's not real. There's no thing there. You're not actually, you don't actually have something. With gold, you have something, right? Okay, but by that argument, then like Amazon is not really valuable because like it's a website. Well, yeah, and this is where it's (laughs) hard, right? Is like, to me, there's nothing different between a digital good and a physical good. But I think for older generations, there is, right? Where something you have in a computer is not real the same way a physical good is You could say in some senses, like they each have different types of fragility. Yeah. So like you could say for Bitcoin, like if you have a wallet, it could be hacked. Okay, sure. And if you don't understand necessarily how wallets work, you might be like, okay, there's more risk of like, since I just don't understand it, there's something that could go wrong that I don't know. And you know, like I could lose that. Whereas like to lose this bar of gold that I have in my house, like someone would have to break in and get past me and my AR-15 yeah. <laughs> and like get this bar of gold, right? So it's like more understandable maybe, but they're definitely fragile in their own ways. They both have fragility. Like you can steal from a wallet, like that it's happened tons of times. So it's not like cryptocurrency is like foolproof and you could also forget your key, which has also happened tons of times for people, Yeah, unfortunately, unfortunately for them. <laughs> um, just like people can break into your house and take your stuff. So having a physical thing isn't foolproof either. Or you could just lose it too. Yeah. Or it could burn down. 
where like all sorts of stuff can happen. There's all kinds of things, but it's, but that's an interesting meme, right? Where I think that a lot of older people discount Bitcoin because they don't see it as real. Right. Whereas we see it as real. I think we've just seen so much value created on the internet. Like people, so many people get rich off of like digital things that it's not weird for us to see like money be digital. Yeah. Well, like your website doesn't, like a website doesn't exist in real life from that, by that definition. Yeah. Right. If you came to me and you told me, hey, I have a friend who built a multi-million dollar business and he's never met his employees. Yeah, that's, I'd be like, that's believable. I'd be like, yeah, yeah. like that's not weird. Yeah. But you, you go say that 10 years ago, people are like, whoa, <laughs> right? Yeah. Like 20 years ago, they'd be like, you're lying. Yeah. Right. <laughs> it's just not 10 possible. 10 years ago, it'd be like possible, but very yeah. odd. Odd. Like right? people would definitely doubt odd. you. <laughs> yeah, exactly. I'd be like, 20, no. 20, 30 years ago, just be like, no, that just doesn't, doesn't happen. happen. Yeah. And so I think some of those... They're very different paradigms, right? And those paradigms inform the goals of the system, right. which he's getting to here. And so if you have different paradigms, you're going to think about the goals that's a really good point. much more differently. And that's why they're a higher tier in terms of importance here. Or you could like understand where someone else is coming from. If they come from a similar mindset, even if they have a different goal at the end of the day. Like if you think about it in most, let's say most political situations in the US, we all come from, not all, but most of us, I would say come from this mindset of like, okay, democracy is probably the best form of government, right? right. That's like a shared paradigm. Because like, if you didn't believe that, you're probably not participating in the system. Yeah. <laughs> right? Like there's anarchists, there's like all sorts of like other, you know, different types of political systems that people, there's, yeah, as we were talking about on a different episode, there's a New York City socialists right. group, right? It's like, for them, a liberal democracy is probably not the way they want to go. So they're not operating out of the same paradigm. But when you have the same paradigm, you can speak the same language, participate in the same games, like an election, which is yeah. essentially a finite game of some sort. Um, yeah. So this is kind of like determines how you would determine the goals. Because if you don't have the same paradigm, like, okay, I guess what I'm trying to say is like electing somebody president, you'd have to agree on what a president is to be able right. to elect. Like you might have differences on what the president should do. But you'd have to agree that like the role is a thing. Yeah. But if you come from an like authoritarian system where it's like there's a dictator and like that's the person, it's like this wouldn't make any sense. This idea of like this person occupies the office of president. The idea would not make any sense to you. You'd just be like, no, like it's not an office. Like this is what I, I am. I am the office. <laughs> yeah. Well, it, like, it, Kim Jong-un would not understand <laughs> what we're talking about. right? Or he would, but he would say it's wrong. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> right. Yeah. Well, and I think it's useful on a more local level too. Yeah. Which is that if you are arguing with someone who has different paradigms of reality from you, it will be very difficult for you to have a rational discussion. Yeah. Which is where a lot of political discourse breaks down. And I mean... I've been reading more about this for an upcoming episode, but it's part of like the postmodernist ideal is that there is no objective truth. There is just subjective reality. And so if you're arguing with someone and you're saying like, no, science is real and all this stuff, and they're saying like, well, it's mostly interpretation based, you're not arguing about, you know, you're not arguing for reason anymore. You both have different ideas of what reality is. And unless you can resolve those, you can never argue about anything below them. Right. So the paradigms of, you know, life are kind of like the highest level that you have to go to to try to understand each other. And honestly, sometimes to just say, okay, well, we never can. Right. Right. Like we're we're just never going to see eye to eye on this. Yep. Which I think is where a lot of like atheists go wrong saying like, oh, how can these religious people like believe this stuff? They're so stupid. And it's like, well, no, they're operating on a different paradigm. Right. You. They're like accepting faith and they want faith in their life. And that is something that's like 
you know, antithetical to your beliefs, but that it's like you'll never convince somebody who is going off faith with a reason-based argument. Yeah. Like, it just doesn't work. It's it's also just like, it's hard to, like an atheist is also essentially religious about being atheist. Yeah. In some sense. Well, they they have their own faith. Yeah. Right. Right. They have their own faith. Right. Exactly. Yeah. But in their, I guess in their paradigm or their mindset, they're not thinking about it the same way. Yeah. Right. So it's like reality is one thing, but I guess their mindset is different, meaning they can't talk to each other in a, in a way that they could convince each other. And as it comes back to the systems, one of the best ways to influence the system is to change the paradigms driving it. Which is what we were talking about around going back to gun control, right? It's like, it's the NRA is not the entity that is like what I was talking about when I was saying like, it's more the constituents and not the NRA. The constituents are the mindset, essentially. They're the ones who have the mindset of, you know, that like there should be no restrictions on guns and that's what it is, right? It's like, so the best leverage point so far has been to, you know, you should probably influence that mindset. And then you, you know, the NRA might not exist because people don't believe in that anymore. Yeah. But getting rid of the NRA is not going to solve the problem. That's right? at yeah. the like parameter level. Yeah. 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 Cause like people would, let's say you just ban the NRA tomorrow. There'll be another, or I'm sure there already exactly. are the NGA multiple. national gun association. I'm sure there are other organizations actually that we just don't know, which are just like the JV just have less money right now yeah. because <laughs> there is a positive feedback loop for the NRA yeah, where they true. get some money. So they get more money cause they can advertise more. And there's also some anti-fragile stuff that they have going on, which is like every time there's a shooting, people will always talk about the NRA. Mm-hmm. So they get all this PR around it as well. It's free. And you'll have every people article. complaining about it, but yep. complaining doesn't drain their money. Yeah. Because, and then at the same time, they'll people message more, yeah. giving them more money, yeah. right? Because you know there are going to be people who are like, oh, fuck, there's another shooting. People are going to try to take away guns. Yep. I better donate to the NRA. Well, it's like gun them. sales are anti-fragile in that sense, where yeah. they always go up whenever there's a shooting incident like this, because people, I guess, I don't know, people just start thinking they're going to take the guns or mm-hmm. something. Well, and whenever there's talk about regulation or buybacks and stuff people start buying because they're worried they won't get them again right it'll be harder yeah it'll be harder and to be honest you know if we weren't living in new york if i heard that there was a serious consideration of outlawing them and stuff i'd be like okay well now is the time yeah it's like it's kind of a rational response right it is yeah Yeah. exactly which is probably why that happens why it happens yeah exactly all right last one down to number one number one the power to transcend paradigms so reading from the book she says This is to realize that no paradigm is true, that everyone, including the one that sweetly shapes your own worldview, is a tremendously limited understanding of an immense and amazing universe that is far beyond human comprehension. It is to get, at a gut level, the paradigm that there are paradigms, and to see that that itself is a paradigm, and to regard that whole realization as devastatingly funny. It is to let go into not knowing, into what the Buddhists call enlightenment. If no paradigm is right, you can choose whatever one will help you to achieve your purpose. I love that. And I also think it has a lot of postmodernist. Yeah, it's very like, it's it's a weird answer and non-answer, right? right? Where she's saying like, eventually you just realize that none of it matters and none of it's true. And you just got to like surrender into not knowing anything and make it up as you go. Yeah. Which is a very common conclusion for a lot of these things I find. It's kind of like way of Zen. It's like, yeah. oh, well, yep. no matter how good you get at Zen, like you still know nothing. Or right. Like, well, okay, that's not very helpful. Or that it's all illusion. Yeah, or none of it's real. I also find, I think like the main way that I would interpret this is that, um, so that's one way. And then the other way is that uh, it's like the universe is just so infinitely complex and you are just so simple of a being mm-hmm. that like you'll never be able to see even like one one millionth of the complexity that's out there. I think the other way it's helpful is 
you and I have both had experiences of throwing off past paradigms. Yeah. Right. Where exactly. you had some interpretation of the world and <laughs> yeah. you realized that was incomplete or wrong. Right. And you toss it away to try to like find a better understanding. So it's a lot easier to think that you're wrong right now. Exactly. <laughs> yeah. And so accepting that you have to say, okay, well, most of the things I believe right now are probably also wrong. And I will realize that at some point. I can see why that would be devastatingly funny. Yeah. Because it's, it's like, like, oh, okay. Like none of this matters either. So I don't yeah. have to take it too seriously. It's yep. kind of like, you know, Thomas Kuhn's theory of scientific revolutions, right? I've heard it, but I haven't like. It's, it's not really worth reading. Okay. But You've read it? Yeah, yeah. It's painful to get through. She talks about it, I think. She talks about it because he's the one who introduces the concept of a paradigm. Okay. He was the first one to really popularize that idea. And he's saying that we move in cycles of scientific paradigms where, you know, the sun revolves around the earth. Okay. Now the earth revolves around the sun. Okay. Now Newtonian physics is real. Okay. Now Einsteinian physics is real. Right. And, you know, the past things get realized as false. And then, but then we adopt the new thing as true. But obviously, if you have any scientific history, you know that your current interpretation is probably also going to be shown to be false in at least some way. And we kind of have to maintain that playful attitude towards our knowledge in True every science. other walk of life. Yeah. True scientists at least do. Exactly. Yeah. You can't be a flood geologist. Right, exactly. Uh, no, actually, somebody brought this up with me recently after the um, Darwin's Dangerous Idea episode. And they said that like they actually use these exact words, which were that they think that right now we're going through like an evolutionary paradigm where we look at almost everything through the lens of evolution. Mm -hmm. And it's interesting to think about that, right? It's like, it doesn't mean evolution's wrong. Yeah. It just means that like, that's the lens with which we're looking at everything right now. And there's probably a good chance that's not the whole truth. Well, who is we? Well, we is like, I would say like the people- Listeners listen of this, to podcast. this podcast. Okay. Yes. Yeah, yeah. Right? Is like, even just look at the books that we've looked at, right? It's like a lot of them have like an evolution bent to it. Right. And I would say that's not like, we're not being like iconoclast with our, our sort of group. I'm just going to use that. Like people have probably thought, they think about things in similar ways as well. So we're probably like right in line with that. And so, you know, probably that's the paradigm that our group is going through right now. And like, maybe that's all it'll be, but probably odds are, you know, 40 years from now, there'll be like some other lens that we look at everything through. Or that people like us would look at everything through. Yeah, possibly. It I, doesn't mean that evolution's wrong. Just like right. Newtonian physics is not wrong. It's just like not the whole story. Incomplete. Yeah. Yeah. Just like I think maybe it could be epigenetics or there could be like some other, like there could be like something else that we're looking through, looking at things through, like a lens that we're looking at things yeah. through. Yeah. That we just don't, we're not looking at it through right now. Yeah. Because like Einstein's not wrong, but he's also not the full He's picture. also incomplete. Right. right. So that's kind of what I mean. Well, I, I like, do think, though, that we can distinguish between conceptual evolution and Darwinian evolution. Okay. Darwinian evolution, definitely incomplete. And a yeah. lot has been added to that since right. then. Of course. Yeah. But I think conceptual evolution is almost like mathematics, right? Mm -hmm. Where if we found another alien species, we would not be surprised if they had a concept of evolution. Yes. Right? Yeah. We might be surprised if they had a concept of postmodernism. But <laughs> that's true. <laughs> like evolution as sort of a theory for everything seems to win out. Definitely. You know, just like though, we would also not be surprised if they had a concept of like Newtonian physics either. Yeah, exactly. So that is like some sense of gravitation. Right, exactly. Yeah. It is a law in this as far as it can go. It's a conceptual law. As a mathematical law, it's incomplete. Right, exactly. Yeah. yeah. But it wouldn't be surprising if they had something like that as exactly. well. Maybe it wouldn't be called Newtonian physics. That would be weird. That would be weird. Yeah. <laughs> but, <laughs> but to have a sense for that and then also to have a sense for like relativity and have their own concept for like quantum. Yeah. That would not be surprising. Those whatsoever. things would be immutable across species and galaxies. Yeah. But so what I'm saying is like, there are probably other 
lenses that we like we're not at the end of knowledge basically is my yeah, point definitely yeah not. that's kind of where i was going with which it. is why we listen to this podcast exactly <laughs> <laughs> so we can improve our own paradigms yeah transcend them or at least run ourselves in circles at least totally thinking about we'll it. Yeah. it yeah <laughs> that's what uh, it feels like sometimes but it's fun it is fun yeah. i enjoy it all right i think it's probably a good note for us to wrap up on yeah i'm just looking anything else here I guess the last thing we should mention is what she wraps up with Yeah. about leverage points, where she says, magical leverage points are not easily accessible, even if we know where they are and which direction to push them. There are no cheap tickets to mastery. You have to work hard at it, whether that means rigorously analyzing a system or rigorously casting off your own paradigms and throwing yourself into the humility of not knowing. In the end, it seems that mastery has less to do with pushing leverage points than it does with strategically, profoundly, madly letting go. I love that ending. That was really good. It's a very well-written article. Yeah. It's excellent. The perfect length. Our podcast was probably longer than we were expecting. Yeah, longer for this than one, it would take but... you to read the article. Yeah. <laughs> Much longer. Yeah. yeah. It's not like GEV where yeah. you're getting a good deal where it's yeah. like, oh yeah, just listen to an hour and a half and then I don't have to read a 30-hour book. With this one... Still read the book though. Yeah, still read the book. But with this one... You can definitely read the article faster than we went through it, yeah, but, but you, won't get, you won't get the tangents. Yeah. Yeah. And you won't get the discussion and get the discussion, all the other fun stuff. So Some thank you all cameo. for sticking with us. Yeah. Um, I think we should give a couple quick shout outs to our sponsors. Uh, we'll start with Perfect Keto. So I guess Nat can tell you a little more about the products. I've used them as well, but Nat's yeah. used more of them. Yes. Yeah. So if you're curious about a ketogenic diet, you know, normally high fat, low carb, somewhat low protein these are just very useful products to help you get into and maintain ketosis. we should maybe do an episode on diet and ketosis i think we've point. talked about doing we've that. Talked we haven't about done it, it. Yeah, yeah. yeah we'll definitely do that soon actually we should get somebody on too for that yeah really fun. we could get anthony he's the ceo yeah that'd be really be fun. good but anyway so perfect keto uh exogenous ketones are great their pre-workout is great uh their matcha mct oil powder is particularly delicious highly recommend that one uh mct oil powder is better than mct oil exactly much lower chance of disaster pants yeah <laughs> it's not fun for anyone no uh that's perfect keto well, perfect keto is now on the support page by they the are way. yes so, so we fixed that link yeah so they fixed the link and before i think it wasn't on the support page until today or yesterday whenever i added it <laughs> um but yeah but basically you can go there so majorthinkpodcast.com slash support click on the link or you can just go to perfectketo.com slash think and you get 20 percent off they have a few special packages there for you as well and yeah. i think some free shipping also so Go, definitely go check that out. Yeah. In addition to that, Kettle on Fire, kettleonfire.com slash think. They also give you 20% off. Delicious bone broths. So Amazing bone broth. Amazing bone broth. If you're cooking, I recommend the beef. If you're drinking it, I recommend the chicken. Chicken has a bit more flavor to it, mm. but they're both great. I've never drank it. Only cooked with it. Oh, dude. They're, they're really nice to drink. Yeah, yeah like yeah. warm it up. Or, mm -hmm. yeah. Warm it up. It's kind of like a good wintry drink. Oh, sounds good. Put a little uh, cumin in it. I really like cumin and chili powder. Oh, okay. For the chicken one. For either. Okay. Yeah. It's like that combination is pretty good. Actually, if you have it, uh, chili oil is really oh, good too. Put a little chili really oil on good. top with some uh, cumin, a bit of salt. It's very good. Highly recommend. So check those out. Uh, good source of collagen, other organ, bone related nutrients, minerals. Very good for you. Healthy. Especially if you're trying to do keto, it kind of helps you get over some of the initial humps. So. And also just get some nutrients you just don't normally yeah, you don't get from get your diet. Completely. If you're not yep. breaking open bones and sucking out the marrow. Which I don't think most of us are. So. Yeah, you could probably be yeah. eating some bone broth. So yeah. check that uh, out. You also get a discount. Yes. So you go to uh, kettleonfire.com slash think and you get... So depending, there's a few different sort of packages they've added there for you. You could get up to 30% off doing that. So, um, you know, just take a look at that. You get free shipping no matter which package you choose. 
shout out to Kettle and Fire for giving us uh, those good deals for our listeners. Yeah. So. And since it's 30% off the big package, if you order the big package three times, you get it for free. Yeah. It, that adds up to 100%. So you don't have to pay anything. You just... <laughs> That's not true. <laughs> I was giving that a look. I'm like, I don't know. Wait, I, there was a second be... there. There was a second there where you were like spinning the wheels. You're like, wait, I don't. It's like, that doesn't think make that's any right. sense. That. <laughs> <laughs> Nat does have a habit of uh, over promising. Yeah. <laughs> like there was that one time you were like for Amazon, I think, right? It was yeah, like, it was like free money. Yeah, <laughs> you get your products for free. Uh, so just if you click through our link, click through our link. Yeah, you get free stuff from Amazon. Don't tell Jeff; yeah. he's not gonna like it when he finds out. But yeah, but anyway, Kettle and Fire they give you up to thirty percent off, uh, even if you get the lower package. It's only twenty percent off. So, yeah. but it's still it's pretty okay. damn good and free shipping, which is awesome because bone broth does weigh a significant amount. So, so getting free shipping is a good deal. And then last but certainly not least, for Sigmatic. Forsigmatic.com slash think. Get your mushroom coffee. Get your cordyceps or reishi elixirs. I think I'm gonna have a reishi elixir tonight. Oh yeah. It's a Actually, great reishi way. hot chocolate tonight. Yeah, the reishi hot chocolate is delicious. The hot chocolate stuff is really good. I recommend most of those products. They also give you 15% off. I believe I want to say something like that. Off. Yeah. With the code think. We drink the mushroom coffee pretty normally during episodes if yep. we're not drinking wine. <laughs> and uh cordyceps before working out is great. Yeah, reishi great before sleep is really good. So, well, it tastes really good too. I've, I've like mentioned this to some people. Yeah, that's the thing. It all tastes delicious. When you say mushroom coffee, like some people are like, what? Mm. That sounds a little nasty. Yeah. But like, I'm not going to lie. Like you could barely tell with the mushroom coffee, at least you can barely tell there's any mushrooms in there. And I personally like the taste of mushrooms. So it I don't just mind. It tastes like interestingly flavored yes. coffee. And it does taste like coffee. Yeah. So like, I mean, I personally love the flavor of coffee. So I would always prefer to drink coffee over tea. And this has the caffeine of tea with the flavor of coffee and I mean, personally, I feel like I get just as alert through mushroom coffee as I do from regular coffee, but less caffeine. Less caffeine. So you can fall asleep easier and you don't get that jittery, you know, crazy tangent monkey brain. (laughs) (laughs) But yeah, so check out the sponsors. Yep. Oh, you can also go to the support page and click on the shop at Amazon link if you want a very easy way to support the podcast. You can buy whatever you'd normally buy on Amazon, such as books that we cover on the podcast, laptops, jet skis, jet skis yeah. luxury goods, luxury goods uh, uh, tiny homes. <laughs> Basically anything you'd want to buy on Amazon. Yeah. And we get some percentage of the purchase. Five to seven percent, yep. depending. Yeah. Yep. And um it doesn't cost you anything. So it's totally free for you. Uh, it's a, a very easy way to support the podcast. So just go to madeyouthinkpodcast.com slash support. Click on the Amazon link. And also while you're there, you should subscribe to the email list where we send out the episodes ahead of time like this one. So you could read the article or get the books before we actually release we'll the episode. Yep. We also give out the bonus material Yep. where we're usually we'll talking some about ones. some other related tangential stuff before the episode starts those are usually pretty fun more kind of behind the scenes stuff usually and we'll also send out any other exciting things that are coming up we don't have any yet but that should whet your appetite we promise exciting things in the future that you won't get unless you sign up for the email list bonus episodes bonus episodes yeah bonus interviews yep more free money (laughs) (laughs) okay that's (laughs) <laughs> well, we talked about doing giveaways. It's kind of like free money. That is kind of free. It's money, kind of like free money. Yeah, yeah, free money. Yeah, it is free money. Yeah, just like in the form of books or yeah. something else. Yeah, yeah, that's good. Yeah, that's good. So, yeah. all right. So, uh, go there, subscribe there. 
definitely leave a review on iTunes if you have not already. Thank you to everybody who has. Uh, is there anywhere else they can leave a review or is it just iTunes? You can on Stitcher, maybe Overcast. I know Stitcher has a review section, but honestly, like nobody looks in Stitcher. Yeah, the iTunes, it's really just iTunes. The iTunes one is just important because, uh, you know, it's not like we need our egos stroked, although we sometimes do. But <laughs> that's not his head. Like, yeah, yeah. mine stroke. I like it when you look me in the eyes while you do it, too. <laughs> Yeah, so it's not just for our egos. <laughs> I'll leave that aside. <laughs> um, it's not just for our egos. It helps us show up on other podcasts as a related podcast, and then it helps us do more cool stuff for you guys. Exactly. It'll make it easier to bring guests on in the future, yeah, too. exactly. Have a little bit of that. Yeah, they always look at that, and um, especially like Nassim Taleb. It's true. Wanna... Although for him, it might be good if we have zero reviews. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, he might now... look at it badly if we have Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Too many, or if we have like, 500 reviews and like a three-star rating yeah. right that that would be more of his alley yeah right? <laughs> that'd be up his alley that'd be up his alley yeah yeah, yeah. well it's like anti-fragile so are right? you There's asking a... people to leave a three-star review then no I'm just, <laughs> no it's not worth it but i'm just thinking it's for him it. right like i can see I him like how you pause for a second though with i was, I was, like, tempted. Ah, I was like, it's not worth I, it i feel like four stars four stars <laughs> is like a good I'm not, I'm not saying you should leave a four-star review. I'm saying you should either leave a five-star or like a one or two-star, <laughs> right? Because if-, if That would go, actually help, I think. That's the thing. It's like, the, yeah, yeah, the, yeah. You got to have some controversy. You got to yeah. have some like Middlebury students rallying against our podcast and leaving it bad reviews, right? If you don't piss off anyone, you're not being a- Should we post it like the Middlebury, like- Reddit or something, something yeah. like that. Yeah. <laughs> Find one of their Facebook groups. They would have to dig pretty deep into the episode though to hear us say. They would. That would take some commitment. Yeah. No. That'd be impressive, actually. I'd what if we were surprised. like converting Middlebury students? That'd be awesome. That'd be awesome. That'd yeah. Be if you're a converted Middlebury student, yeah, let us podcast. know on Twitter. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. You can join us for an episode. Yeah, and also, we're not just picking up Middlebury. There's plenty of other schools like that. That's just the most fun one to yeah. pick on. <laughs> the most. I know. <laughs> I don't know anyone who went there either, which helps. I think that helps too. Yeah, yeah. because I don't have to worry about like, oh, I'm going to offend this person that I actually like. Yeah. 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 But I guess that's not good either. It's like classifying someone as the other because you don't know anyone like that. I don't know. Tribalism is fun. <laughs> Everyone else is doing it. Why can't we? It's a good t shirt. Yeah. <laughs> Tribalism is fun. <laughs> Maybe someday we'll do t shirts. Yeah. <laughs> All right. I think on uh, on that note, on that note, we'll, on that other the next uh, episode of Made You Think, we'll dig deeper into that merchandise concept. Yes, we will. <laughs> <laughs> All right. All right. Have a good one, everyone. Yep. Thank Until you. Until next time. See you guys.